Okay, how you doing, everybody? And welcome to the John Riley Project. And today I have a very special guest, and it's David Leland. How you doing, David? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. It's been a while, but I'm glad to be back. Well, I got a lot to talk about today. I know you you have been on the podcast now probably about three or four times. And and so I was just really excited to have you back on board. We're going to talk a little March Madness, a little Padres. But you started your own podcast. So, yeah. Yeah, tell me a little bit about it. How's that going? Yeah, it's... You know, it's it's always going to start slow, but, you know, I got people who are telling me that they're listening, and so that's good that I have a base to start with. It's the, it's just the Davy Sports Podcast. I know, very creative, but <laughs> <laughs> I've recorded 10 episodes so far, just getting started on that. It's been really fun. I've been talking about a lot of stuff happening with San Diego Sports lately, like we're going to today, and it's been good, yeah. Yeah, I think you're going to be really good at this because uh, you've got a lot of sports knowledge, a lot of sports passion, a lot of sports opinions. So I think you're going to be terrific at this. So keep going. And I know when you start out with the podcast in the beginning, like you said, a little slow going. But as you build and you grow that audience, you start to get momentum and then things really start to develop. Uh, So keep sticking with it. All right, will do. Okay, so um, we we want to really talk a little bit about the Aztecs and the Padres. So let's let's start with the Aztecs. You know, we got March Madness coming up, College of Charleston on Thursday. But before we jump there, just give me a little bit of a like looking backwards. How did you see the whole season and the Mountain West tournament for the Aztecs? Well, I thought that you know coming into the season, you know, obviously we had. We were ranked, what, 19th coming in? Mm-hmm. And that was the highest preseason ranking ever because we were only 25th when we made the Sweet 16 with Kawhi. And we were unranked at the start of the year in both our second Sweet 16 year and the year we went 30-2 and when the tournament got canceled. So I think that was the – pretty sure that was the highest preseason rank, one spot higher than when we were 20th at the start of the 2012-2013 season. So, I'm, you know, people were saying we were a dark horse for the Final Four and then – you had the two tough losses in Maui and then some ugly wins about a month after that. You're like, oh, I don't know. But then they do what they always do. When, when the calendar flips to February, Brian Dutcher just keeps winning. I mean, I don't know what exactly it is, but I believe he's now something like 36-7 and seven or something like that in February since he took over in the 2017-2018 season. And they won the Mount West Tournament. It was nice to finally win a Mount West Tournament. It seems like we always get to the championship yes. game and then lose a lot. Yeah, that so, happens too often. So it was it was nice to you know get a third win over Utah State and win both the regular season and the Mount West title. And they were 18th in the last poll, I believe it was, before the one released yesterday before the tournament. So actually one spot higher than they were preseason. So yeah. Feeling pretty good about this team. Yeah, I mean, we we rode a roller coaster through this season, right? We had all these high expectations. You know, that game against Arkansas and Maui didn't go the oh way we my wanted. God. You know, Arizona, we lost. I kind of figured we would probably lose that one. Yeah. Then uh, the St. Mary's loss is a little bit disappointing. Well, the St. Mary's was pretty good, so. But yeah. still, we were a little flat, little... And we've Didn't beaten them. Game. We yeah, beat we have. And, you know, and, and then you get into the regular season and you had the hiccup against um, uh, New Mexico at home. I was at that game. Oh, that you was were. a tough one. Oh, Jalen House was just giving it to the crowd that game. Uh, but they, they really, like you say, they flipped the calendar to February. They finished strong in February and they ran the table on the tournament. I mean, they've got to be going into this Thursday game with Charleston with a big head of steam, a lot of momentum, and a lot of optimism. 
Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about Charleston. So they went 31 and 3, 16 and 2 in the Colonial. They tied for the Colonial regular season championship with Hofstra, and then they won the Colonial tournament. Mm-hmm. Got a little help because Hofstra lost to the four seed UNC Wellington in the semifinal, so they only had to beat the four seed to get in. They only beat them by five points. They only beat the three seed, which was Towson, by five points. So they're not exactly coming in like firing on all cylinders. I mean, they're getting the wins, but not exactly firing on all cylinders. They remind me a lot of Utah State in terms of play style because you hear so much about how they like to get out and shoot threes. I mean, Mm -hmm. didn't we just beat a team like that three times in Utah State? (laughs) Yeah, we did. (laughs) And interestingly enough, I thought they were kind of similar, but looking at the numbers, I was looking at the Ken Palm metrics. Utah State is 13th in offense, 64th in defense on Ken Palm. Utah State's 70th, and I mean, sorry, uh, Charleston is 70th and 75th. Oh, wow. In the metrics. So if Utah State would definitely have that record if they played their games, home games in South Carolina with that travel schedule, that level of opponents. So like, Utah State could do what they did, and we beat Utah State three times. So, mm-hmm. Well, it seems like what I've seen of Charleston, I mean, they got all those three point shooters, but their three point conversion rate isn't all that amazing. I mean, I think they only make about 30 to 33%, right? But it seems like they not only are shooting the threes, but the other players are always cutting to the basket. And they have like a lot of rhythm and flow to the way their offense works. So the Aztec defense has got to not only guard that that three line, but they're going to have to be looking, you know, for guys down in the post cutting baseline, right? Yeah. My thing about Charleston is that they have no quad one wins. Like, they played a pretty weak schedule, and they only have two quad two wins. Their highest win in terms of net rankings was Kent State, who was 59th mm-hmm. in the net. And that's the only tournament team they beat because Kent State won the MAC tournament, so they got in. Did, did you notice that when they, when then you know, on Selection Sunday, right? So yeah. they get the, they announce the brackets, and right away Aztecs were like, you know, in the first few minutes when they announced the bracket. Then they had Charleston, and right away, like, Clark Kellogg and some of the other guys on TV were immediately saying, oh, Charleston, that's a good team. I like them as a as a 12-5 upset over San Diego. Well, it seemed like they said that right away. Well, I mean, it seems like every year, like, all those analysts, like, they just pick one double-digit seed that they love and are going to pick to win no matter what. And I think Charleston's that team. And then Seth Davis just picks every 12-5 upset every year. <laughs> Yeah, he picks too many upsets. He's probably the guy whose bracket isn't very good because he picks too many upsets trying to outsmart everybody. Yeah, well, then you just hit on one of them, and then you can say, "I told you so," right? Yeah, <laughs> that was me when I had a Florida Gulf Coast beating Georgetown in 2013. Oh, <laughs> everyone told me I was an idiot for picking that, but then I was right. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah every once in a while you have one of those that does really well. But I, I want to talk a little bit about your bracket. But let's keep talking about San Diego State. I mean, what did you think about Jaden Ladee in that Mountain West? Uh, championship game. I mean, he's going to be dangerous on Thursday against Charleston. I mean, yeah, he's he he was a beast against Utah State in that championship game, and I think the fact that he stepped up and had that big game against in the Mountain West Championship game kind of shows why I think this team has a chance to do something special. Because you know, if one guy's not scoring, other guys will. Like like Darian Tremel, he couldn't. He couldn't successfully throw a pee in the ocean in the (laughs) quarterfinal against Colorado State. Then he was our leading scorer in the semifinals against Mm -hmm. San Jose State after his teammates kind of picked him up in the quarterfinals. Then obviously we talk about it was mostly Bradley and Ladee really doing the scoring against Utah State. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, 
we have guys who can step up if other guys are having a down night, which is really good to see. Yeah, it just seems like every week it's someone different, you know. So this this last game it was Ladie. I mean, Bradley's always there. Some nights it's Seiko. Yeah. Some nights it's Parrish. Yeah. You know, some nights it's Keyshad. I mean, this team is so deep that you can't just focus on one guy because the other guys will burn you. Yeah. And that's the thing about this team is that people got to realize when they take Charleston to like and name their stats and their record and all that, like you got to figure, remember who they're facing when they get that and compared to us. Because like they're averaging 80.8 points a game. They're not going to get close to that against us. Yeah, no way. And, you know, if we hold them, you know, 15 under their average at 65, can we get 67 on them? I think so. Mm-hmm. And this is an important thing to point out is that since February 1st, we're only allowing 58 points a game. And wow. Jeff Grammer, I'm sure, you, I don't know if you've seen him on Twitter. You probably have. The yeah. guy who um, covers uh, Lobo basketball for Albuquerque Journal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I know what you're talking about. So he tweeted that, yeah, Charleston's a great story and everyone likes picking him all that. But they have not, but San Diego State has the 10th best de- defensive metrics, according to Ken Palm. And Charleston hasn't faced a team with defensive metrics higher than 97th since Thanksgiving. Oh, wow. Wow. So, uh, so yeah, so Charleston has never faced anything like this before. No. So the, it's, it's, this could be kind of some thuggery. I mean, we might be able to just knock them out. Yeah, I mean, I think that they might not. I, I expect it to not be a blowout. I do think we'll win. I don't think it'll be a complete blowout, but... At the same time, would it really shock anybody if they don't know what hits them because they don't know what they've been playing and those teams aren't what we are and what teams in the Mountain West are? Mm-hmm. Hey, before we go any further, I just want to just address the audience. If you have any questions or comments for David about the Aztecs, March Madness, questions about the Padres, which we're going to get to in a moment, you could type those in in the live stream, in the live chat on either Facebook or YouTube. We'll see them on the screen here. We'll get you involved in the conversation. So we'll, hopefully we'll get some Q&A today, David. Yeah, that'd be really cool, actually. I don't think I've ever really done that. That'd be awesome, though. Yeah, so we'll see how this goes. It just depends on who wants to get yeah. involved. So um, who do you who do you see? as the the players to watch in this tournament for the Aztecs. Do you think any one of the guys is going to have a really big tournament? Well, I'll say this, is that you talk so much about, you know, experience and guard play when you get to March Madness. And to me, so you got to talk about Seiko. I mean, that's a guard, Mm -hmm. uh, super senior, uh, who was part of the 2020 team who lost their chance in the tournament. So I keep an eye on him. I'd also keep an eye on the other three guys from, still here from our 2020 team that, you know, were robbed of their chance. You know, Mensa, he would have come back for the tournament that year. It sounds like he would have been clear for the tournament had happened. Mm-hmm. So I'll throw him in there. A rope. And who wouldn't want to see him go out? I mean, he's oh, yeah. he's a crowd favorite, fan mm-hmm. favorite. Everyone loves him. Like, who, would, who wouldn't want to see him go out? And he's been playing fantastic. I love the energy he brings. I love the fearlessness you know he'll dive on the ground for every loose ball despite all his ailments and beatings that he's taken and he's tenacious on the boards off offensive rebounds and then Keyshawn, you know he was on that team too he was just a freshman but he was still there so yeah i think those guys are like okay we got a good seed good we got a good seed and this is our last shot we got to take advantage of what was taken from us three years ago. So Mm -hmm. those are the guys I'm looking for in the tournament. Yeah, I am too. I'm with you there on AG. I mean, I think he is just such a great guy to root for. And the more I've learned about him, the more I really love him. Um, But uh, give me your take on this. Um, 
it seems like San Diego State gets no respect. Do you ever notice that in the media, especially from the East Coast guys? They're always overlooking San Diego State. When they talk about West Coast basketball, they talk about UCLA, they talk about Gonzaga, they even talk about St. Mary's uh, and certainly Arizona. But San Diego State seems to be an afterthought. I mean, do you think that has something to do with their challenges in the more recent tournaments? Um, I think maybe that definitely would play somewhat of a role, but I also think it's just the fact that, you know, with the Mountain West TV contracts, we have so many games that are 11 p.m. Eastern time, and none of these guys are staying up to watch us play at 11 p.m. against Wyoming, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are tough games. Some of them even here, I remember on the West, yeah, 11 o'clock Eastern, because they started at 8 o'clock Pacific. Yeah. So the TV schedule just is brutal for the Mountain West. Oh, it's one of the many things that I have issues with in the Mountain West, but... Have you ever been to an away game when the Aztecs are playing? I think that'd be a lot of fun to go to. Um, I have not. I went to, for, to an Aztec football away game against Arizona State in 2017 mm-hmm. and against UNLV at Allegiant Stadium in 2021. Nice. But I've never been to an Aztec basketball game on the road. I went to the 2020 Mountain West Championship game against Utah State, but I've never. But that's a neutral site game. I've never been to an away game. Classic mm-hmm. basketball, no. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. I mean, especially at places like Utah State or, or New Mexico, where the fans are just really rowdy. That'd be, yeah. that'd be a lot of fun to go. So, man, maybe that's a bucket list thing. Just do the whole tour of the Mountain West. I know you tour a lot of the baseball stadiums. Yeah, I mean, I've been to Padre away games in Arizona, Colorado, Detroit. But, you know, the Tigers were down last year. And, you know, a lot of people who are fans of other teams, because the Rockies and Diamondbacks are newer franchises, and there's a lot of people moved to Denver and the Phoenix area from elsewhere. So not exactly a hostile environment, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go back to the tournament. Um, so I assume you have the Aztecs beating Charleston in the first round. I do, indeed, yes. And so how far along do you think the Aztecs can go? Can they make the Sweet 16 this year? I think so. And I'm going to talk about that uh, potential round of 32 matchup against either Virginia or Furman. Yeah, this is not, you know, the Virginia teams we've seen in years past. I really don't even think they're all that great this year. I mean, have you seen a lot of their games? The ACC's down this year, and they've had some really ugly wins where they've barely mm-hmm. gone by. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that Duke and North Carolina, the ACC was like the basketball conference. And now, yeah, it's almost uh, yeah. a second-class division. I mean, yeah, Duke came on late, but Carolina didn't make the tournament. Louisville was awful. Notre mm-hmm. Dame, you know, they made the round 32 last year. They stunk this year. So just not your typical ACC. And when, as, as it relates to Virginia, we actually have better metrics, according to Ken Palm, both offense and defense. We're 64 offense, 10 defense. Virginia's 74 offense, 25 defense. Yeah, so it's 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 very interesting because I remember Virginia used to always be kind of like a San Diego State, like a heavy defensive team. Um, but like you said, it's a down year for the ACC. Um, so it's just something. I and mean, we had a couple of comments here. You want to take a few questions here? Yeah. Okay, let's see what we got. And um, this is er, – hang on a second. And we'll go here. And this is uh, from Yuri Bolin. He's a former mayor candidate here in Poway. Okay. And Yuri says, 2020 was the year, but I believe Sweet 16 is quite possible. Great show. A respite from politics, John. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sweet 16 is absolutely possible. We're talking right now about uh, this is just Virginia. If they win, I actually have Furman upsetting Virginia. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because Furman can speed Virginia up. We know the way Virginia pays. Plays. They play really slow. You know, they 
it's kind of boring to watch sometimes, honestly, the way how slow they play. They're the 360th out of 363 teams in Division One in tempo, so they're the fourth slowest team in Division One. Wow. wow. Furman is just outside the top third in pace, so they can speed Virginia up a little bit, take them out of their game. They average 82 points a game. Even if Virginia holds them in the mid-60s, which I don't know if they'll be able to do that because if they speed them up and get more possessions than Virginia typically has to guard for, they could easily you know, get into the low 70s. I don't think Virginia can keep up. I mean, since the, since December 1st, they have only scored 70 points in seven of their 26 games. Wow. So Virginia cannot play that kind of game. Like I said, it's not a good ACC this year. And... You see, Brandon here is saying that Furman has a little more experience. Yeah. Well, let's let's get. Yeah, Brandon has a couple of comments. He goes, "Yeah, Virginia is a weak number four yeah, I mean, seed. Their metrics are worse than us, and we're a five. And uh, Furman, he says, Furman is a little more experienced. Yeah, he's absolutely right. This is a senior team for Furman. They got five seniors on their roster, and this is a team that last year in the Southern Conference tournament championship game, they took Chattanooga to overtime and they lost on a buzzer beater in overtime. So they got that little motivation there, that chip on their shoulder. Like we got our hearts broken last year with a chance to get in. Now we're here. Let's take advantage of it. So that's why I like Furman for the upset. And you look at Furman, they're 33rd in offense. I mean, that's 20 spots worse than Utah state's 13. We have three wins against Utah state and they're 183rd defensively, which is a lot worse than both Charleston and Utah state. So to me, I like Furman for the upset over Virginia, and then I really like our chances against Furman because these offense teams, they don't concern me with the way we play defense, especially lately. And if their defense is, you know, 183rd in the metrics, then that's a team that I think we should do pretty well against. So, yeah, I think we're going to end up in the Sweet 16 for sure. But then if they are able to get that far, the next one is going to be Alabama probably, right? Yeah, I mean, hey, it's March, man. You never know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I think a lot of people are seeing the Aztecs as a, a Sweet 16. A lot of the prognosticators nationally are, say, are seeing that. I think, um, was it John Rothstein said so? And I think even Eric, or what's the other guy's name? Katz. Andy uh, Katz. Yeah, so I think he has the uh, Aztecs going at least two rounds. But it is, isn't it kind of weird to see Alabama as a premier basketball program? You always think of them in football. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think this year when they got to, in when they, I think when they first got into the top five, it was the first time since Saban became Alabama's football coach that the basketball team was ranked higher. Wow. Yeah. And that was since 07. So. Yeah, that's been a long time. So who's your final four? I got Alabama in the final four. I got Marquette in the final four. Texas and UConn. Mm-hmm. I went with UConn because, you know, they played a lot of tough games in the Big East, and UConn's one of those teams that kind of surprises you in the tournament sometimes. And with Kansas, I just don't know. I mean, I know they're pretty good. I know they won the national championship last year, but let's be real. The the NCAA tournament doesn't always make sense. and no, it doesn't. <laughs> and UConn is good enough that mm-hmm. they can play Kansas tough, and, you know, maybe one bounce goes their way, and they end up winning by, like, four or five. That's what kind of what I can see happening because every year in the tournament, something happens where you're like, you're just stunned. Like, a lot of people are like, oh, well, Kansas, you know, they have all these quad one wins. They won last year. Like, why not run it back with Kansas? But, you know, something will happen. Like, it just always seems to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you're right. Something always crazy happens. And it's funny that you have UConn um, in the Final Four because let me just check my notes here. I have um, 
UConn losing in the first round to Iona. That was one of the upsets that I picked. <laughs> so I mean, it's a Rick Patino team. You can't rule that out. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. So my, That's why we love the tournament. My final four is I only have one really bold choice. I have Arizona, Purdue, Kansas, and Indiana. And so the See, Indiana, I have Indiana losing to Kent State in the round of 64. Yeah, so we're like, we got flip-flop on that. Yeah. And then I have Purdue beating uh, Kansas in the, in the final. So um, what, what other upset picks did you, did you take? Do you remember? Um, I like Kent State over Indiana, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I like Drake over Miami. Mm, okay. I like Boise State to beat Northwestern. I mean, that's 7-10, but still, I like yeah. Boise State to you know get their first ever tournament win. Yeah. So just trying, just sharing the bracket just to refresh your memory. Yeah. I got a few of these too. I Obviously, mean, I like Furman. I mentioned that. Yeah, I think I've got. Um, I, I, I'm taking a flyer on UC Santa Barbara. You know, to, to make the Sweet 16. That's just kind of more of a being a UC alum. Uh, actually, San Diego, but I'm still rooting for Santa Barbara. Yeah, you, t- you have Utah State going uh, into the second round. I don't, but I wouldn't be surprised if they won either. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a little bit of a homer for the Mountain West teams. I yeah. even have Nevada winning the playing game and the, the round uh, of that's 64. That's not a bad pick, just because there's the stat that like every year except one since they've done the four additional teams that, well, there's only been one year where one of the teams from the first four hasn't made it to the round of 32. Wow. So that's interesting. I mean, I don't know. I just didn't like any of those playing teams because, you know, it was such a weak bubble this year. Yeah. Like, Pitt stumbled down the stretch and they're in. Mississippi State really cooled off after they started 10-0 and or whatever it was. They ended up in. Arizona State was, you know, Arizona State. They look good at times. In other games, they just lay eggs. And then Nevada really laid an egg at the end of the season. Yeah, they did. I, mean, I don't even think they really should have gone in. I mean, they lost at Wyoming, who's terrible. And at home to UNLV look, to end the regular season, that's two quad three losses right there. And then they lost their first game in the Mountain West Tournament at San Jose State. Yeah. I mean, they really, yeah, they, they were really, a CBI team. So, but, yeah. But, you know, they, they're, they're the last team in, I think. You yeah. Know? So Mountain West gets four teams in. I remember last year that Mountain West had four teams and they all went over. <laughs> you know, so do you? So you you figure San Diego State's going to win? Um, and do you have do you have Nevada winning that playing game? Um, I don't really know who wins that playing game between them and Arizona State, but I picked TCU to beat whoever wins that playing game anyway. So okay, and then do you have Boise winning the? I do. Yes, and I have then, Boise over Northwestern, and the, but not Utah State winning. No. Okay, so you've got at least two of the teams in the yes, Mountain West yeah. getting wins. Okay. Um, what's your take on um, UCLA and USC? Do you think they're going to be a, a, any viable this year? Well, I think USC is going to win one game just because I think Michigan State is not that guy. I mean, they lost their first game in the Big Ten tournament to a sub-500 Ohio State team. And the Big Ten just kind of sucked this year, if you ask me. Like, they have all these teams in. I don't think any of them make the second weekend. I think Purdue's overrated, too. Wow. I don't think any of these big—what did the Big Ten get? Eight teams in? Yeah, well, they always get a ton of teams, you know. I mean, so I—like, my best friend went to Michigan, so I watch a lot of Big Ten basketball. And that conference stunk this year. I'm sorry. There's no way around it. Like, (laughs) the records and metrics might look decent, but— that conference, it wasn't good this year. Like, it was hard to watch some of those Big Ten basketball games. Well, Penn State made it all the way to the finals of the Big Ten tournament. Um, and they were a 10 seed. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, do you, how do, you, do you have Penn State winning in the first round here? I don't. I mean, I, I think they have more of a chance to win their matchup than some of these other Big Ten teams. But I just think Texas A&M is pretty good, so... 
Okay, we got a bunch more comments here. You mind if we get a couple more in? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's have some fun here. And uh, and this is uh, you know a bunch from here from Brandon and Yuri. So Brandon says Kansas only plays six players. Yeah, that could hurt them going deeper into the tournament, yeah. especially against UConn. You know who's played these physical games in the Big East, so that might wear on them. Is their their coach is back though from Can- the Kansas Bill Self? Yeah, right? he will be back for the tournament. Okay, that's good. That's good to hear. Uh, Brandon goes on to say UConn won the championship in the West region before. Yeah. Was that the year when, uh, what's his name, did the flop? Yeah. Uh, Kemba mm. Walker. Yeah. <laughs> that, and, and just, you know, uh, who was who the guy that he he got in that? It was... Um, Jamal Franklin. Jamal Franklin. Yeah. It was almost mm. like a bait. Ooh, that was, it was a total bait. <laughs> yeah. That was a 100% bait. That was a he tough moment. He knew exactly moment. what he was doing with that. That's why it hurts. Um, Brandon says, yeah, Purdue is an early second exit to me. Yeah, I have them. I actually have Purdue losing to uh, Memphis in the round of 32. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Memphis is going to be good. I mean, you figure, boy, that's Penny Hardaway's team, yeah, right? Yeah, and they beat Houston in the uh, American title game in the American tournament. Yeah, Houston's tough. Yeah, you know, so. so Memphis is, you know, they, they do this every year where Memphis, you know, they kind of look, eh, in like December, January, people start putting Penny Hardaway on the hot seat. Then they play well towards the end of the year, and they <laughs> did it again, so... Yeah, I'm, I I actually have Memphis in the Sweet 16, yeah. You do? I mean, where do I have Memphis? You have, have them losing to Purdue, I think, right? Uh, no, that's that's um, Marquette. Um, where do I have Memphis? Yeah, the Memphis losing to Purdue in the round of 32 is what I've got. Uh, but yeah, don't. that's a team that could do really well. I think but they're in 8th seed. Yeah, they're 9th mm-hmm. seed, I think. Oh, wait, no, they're the 8th. Um, yeah, and Florida Atlantic is the 9th. See, I like Florida Atlantic, too. I just like Memphis more. Right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So let's move on here. We got another comment from Yuri and uh, Yuri says, David is right. Every year there's an upset. I had Kentucky last year and they lost in the first round. Yeah. I think I had Michigan state going to the championship game the year that they lost to middle Tennessee Mm -hmm. in 2016. What was the, when, you know, St. Peter's went into the elite eight last year as a 15 Kentucky. Yeah. That's so what that was the one. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was like one of the all time shockers when the 15 beat a two. Um, Brandon has a comment here. Alford, you know, Steve Alford, Nevada coach is four and one against Hurley and every Hurley team struggling against a zone defense. They have a tough one against Nevada zone defense. Hopefully Cambridge and Washington can figure their former team. Yeah. I mean, Brandon's an Arizona State guy, if you didn't know that. No, I didn't. So um, he, that's actually interesting, because I kind of assumed, you know, Nevada kind of stumbled into the tournament and that Arizona State would beat him. But that's kind of interesting to think about, actually. I mean, I didn't put that much thought into it, because I figured TCU would just beat whoever wins that game anyways. But that's kind of an interesting point there. I mean, how about that shot that Cambridge made to beat Arizona? I mean, that was something. Arizona State wouldn't be in the tournament if he didn't make that shot. Yeah, I mean, I don't that, think they would be in if he didn't make that shot. And that was like what three quarters of a court and nothing but net. Yeah, I mean, it, and it if he amazing. doesn't make that, Arizona State's not in. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, so you've got okay. So who who is it again? You have winning the whole thing, Texas, Texas. Yeah, yeah, Texas was really good this year. I mean, they impressed me too. They they handled Kansas twice down the stretch in the regular season finale and in the Big Twelve tournament championship game. So. I really like uh, can't, I really like Texas this year. Yeah, I think they're pretty good. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's interesting to see them because usually when you think of Big Twelve basketball, you're thinking of Kansas, maybe Oklahoma State who had a bad year. Um, they still should have got in though over Nevada, in my opinion. Yeah, and then Iowa State's usually pretty good in the Big Twelve, and then 
Texas Tech is usually yeah, pretty they good. They had a down year, though. They had, yeah. they, had a, they had a bunch of tough losses, and then, you know, the thing with their coach. and mm-hmm. They just had a t- it was just a tough year in Lubbock. But, yeah, usually they're right there. Yeah, so, I mean, to, so Texas is back in the tournament. I mean, they haven't been this good probably since the Kevin Durant years. No, and I, didn't they just have Durant that one year before he went to the draft? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, when they had Durant, I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> All right, so any uh, final thoughts on the Aztecs and March Madness? I'll say this, is that West Virginia is battle-tested in the Big 12, so that might be Alabama's scare game. So mm-hmm. they can some if they can you know throw Brandon Miller off his game and maybe pull out an upset over... Alabama, then you got, you know, you're facing a, a nine seed potentially in the Sweet 16. I mean, I wouldn't expect that to happen by any means. I mean, I have Alabama going to the championship game. So, but, you know, it's March. You never know. Yeah. You, you just can. never know. I mean, how many people had St. Peter's winning a game last year, let alone getting to the Elite <laughs> yeah. Eight? Right, exactly. Mar- known as San Hello to you. So, um, <laughs> anyways, uh, the thing about West Virginia is, gosh, about five, six years ago, I, I took my, my kids to Vegas when they were in one of those Thanksgiving tournaments. Against us, right? Yeah, and the Aztecs were in there, and Cal was in there. And the remember Aztec- we beat Cal, and then West Virginia kind of kicked our ass the next they day, right? They did, yes. And the, I remember the, the West Virginia guys were huge and strong. I mean, it was like playing a football team. Yeah. So I, maybe is this year's West Virginia team going to be like that? I mean, that coach, what's the coach's name again? Bob Higgins. Bob Higgins, yeah. yeah. So he coaches that way. He recruits that way. He's going to have some tough players. Yeah, always. I mean, they they were they kind of had an up and down year, but again, the Big Twelve is brutal, man. Just brutal. Okay, so we got any more comments here? Yeah, here's a another one from Brandon. Let's get him involved. Yeah, he said something about it, in playing in Kansas City. He says if Texas makes it to the Sweet Sixteen, they have their game at Kansas City, where they won the conference yes, tournament, the Big tournament, and the Kansas Final City. Four is in Houston. Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of you know Texas fans, Texas alums in Houston, and it's only a couple hours from Austin, so that's a big advantage for him. Yeah, that is. I never really thought of it that way, but you're right. So yeah, this could be an easy going for well, not easy going, but there's a pathway for Texas yeah, to absolutely. get to get there. I mean, and I think I believe Texas would have to face um, Houston potentially in the Elite Eight. So you know, if a te- for a, if a Texas team gets the Final Four, let it be Houston in their home city. Or the Longhorns, where you know they got alums and fans there, and you know it's uh, not a terrible drive from Austin. So, wow, yeah. So this this is going to be a great tournament. I mean, I've always said that March and October are my two favorite sports months. You know, because March we got spring training, we got March Madness, and the NBA is getting really interesting. So this is a great time of the year, and and really, is there a better event in sports than the entire March Madness tournament? No. No, I mean, just three weekends of just awesome drama and mm. and Cinderella stories. I'm yeah. really looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, do we are we going to have a St. Peter's this year? Uh, I, you probably, but hopefully the Aztecs are the Cinderella. How about yeah, that? There you go. I mean, five seed winning the tournament would not be out of the question this year because, you know, it's one of those things where is there really a clear favorite? Yeah, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen here in this tournament. There's so many possibilities. So, um, hey, you want to want to talk a little Padres? Want to go there now? Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've been on here, so got to <laughs> review 2022 and look ahead to this year, which we got a little over two weeks for opening day. I mean, 
You talk about this Aztec basketball season being a roller coaster. If that was a roller coaster, what what are the, what were the twenty twenty two Padres if this Aztec team was a roller coaster? Oh, I know. I mean, they had high expectations. They struggled, and then somehow they made it to the NLCS. I mean, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you on the expectations thing because to me it was like you know you came off you know the collapse in twenty twenty one, so you know you had a bit of a question mark there, and then yeah. Tatis, you know, with the wrist injury, shows up first day after the lockout. Oh, yeah, he fractured his wrist in that motorcycle accident. <laughs> He's out till the summer. Like, good luck. And then, you know, they're missing out on all these free agents when it's pretty obvious they needed some help in the lineup. Then they actually get off to a good start. And then, you know, Machado hurts his ankle in Denver. You know, Musgrove and half the coaching staff is sidelined for a week because of the COVID outbreak. And oh, then, you know, mm-hmm. they, they struggle at the end of June into July. Then the deadline comes. We're feeling pretty good. You know, we, they obviously got swept by the Dodgers right after the deadline. But then, you know, they won two out of three against the Giants, won the first game of Washington. You're like, okay, we, our deadline guys are settled now. We're And then Tatis gets suspended. That throws everything <laughs> off for another two weeks. <laughs> that was awful. And then they, then they have the uh, – they take two out of three in Kansas City, and then they sweep in San Francisco, win the first one in L.A. Labor Day weekend. Then they lose the next three, and then they come back from the 5-0 deficit while Milwaukee blows a five-run lead in Denver. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was at the game that night. That was crazy. Because like, we were down 5-0, <laughs> and Merrill Kelly's throwing a perfect game against us, and Milwaukee is winning. I think it was 6-1 to one in Denver. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, God, our lead's going to be down to a game, and then... <laughs> the Rockies score five, I believe it was, in the eighth inning to tie the game as we're chipping away. And then <laughs> Taylor Rogers gave up a walk-off bomb to Gritchick extra innings. I'm like, okay, <laughs> even if we don't finish the comeback, we're not going to lose ground. And then Azokar has that incredible at-bat to load the bases for Alfaro. Alfaro gets the walk-off hit. If we go from, like, an hour and a half ago, we're like, our lead's going to be down to one game to all of a sudden, we're up three. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, they they win the next two, then they lose the last two against the Dodgers, split in Seattle, that ugly Thursday night game in Arizona where Bob Melvin had to chew him out after the game. And then after that, they <laughs> caught fire through the division series. And I want to talk about Bob Melvin. Like, his calming influence to me is, like, he's, like you heard A.J. Przenski in the NLDS was making was almost kind of making fun of him for never changing his expression. <laughs> like, But I think that, that calming influence that that Bob Melvin had was such an impact, not only on the team, but I think on any rational fan. I mean, obviously you got people on Padre Twitter who every time they lost two games in a row or four or six or whatever, <laughs> like, oh, we're going to collapse again. Like Padre Twitter is just a nightmare. So I, much soap oh opera drama with those I think guys. The, I think part of the problem with that, though, is that before last year, we hadn't made the playoffs in a 162-game season since 2006. And, you know, you have you know people who are just – like me, who are too young to really understand, like going through that in 06. Mm-hmm. And then you had people who just started becoming fans either in the COVID season because, you know, they had nothing else to do and just started watching the Padres and we were good that year. And or people who just became started getting into Padre baseball when the Chargers left. So kind of new fans. So like a lot of people just forgot or just didn't know how to like handle the ups and downs of 162. Yeah, I think that's uh, so I think that's part of it. Well, because I think when, you know, the Padres have been awful for so long. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, with a couple of you know, there was some you know, a few good years in the 2000s, but good. We'll put it in quotes. I think they won the division with 83 wins. It was 82 and 05. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's what I want to talk about, too, is like how remarkable that run was, was just that 
because I was born in 98, so I obviously don't remember the 98 World Series run. So all I'd known from the Padres was failure. Like, I don't really consider 05, 06 a success because, like, we won the division, sure, but, you know, a real contender in St. Louis knocked us out in the division series both years. So, right. I mean, what did you accomplish? You won a weak division. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously 2020, you know, everything was kind of weird. You know, only 60 games. Then we saw what happened the next year, and, like, our pitchers were getting hurt you know, through 60 games, or if you count into the playoffs, 63, 64 games, like we were running out pitchers, like what would have happened over the last 102 games had that been a normal season? That's a, that's actually a really good point. I mean, because Lamette went down, Clevenger yeah. went down. I mean, yeah, we would have had no pitching in yeah, June. That was part of why like, I thought the team was a question mark going into 2022, because I thought, you know, 2021 kind of just proved that 2020 would not have had a happy ending if it was, you know, the full 162 like normal. So. Mm-hmm. But I turned out to be wrong. I think that, like I said, Bob Melvin had a lot to do with it. And that's another thing about Padre Tour. They're like, oh, I thought we hired this guy to, like, be an actual manager. And people said he was, like, too, like, mild-mannered or whatever. But, you know, he just, he was calculating. Like, he, you know, he understood, you know, you're going to have your ups and downs in 162. So that calming influence, you know, it kept the lows from sinking the team. And it didn't let the them get too carried away with the highs either like mm-hmm. they understood we're gonna struggle but when they were going mad they're like okay we're gonna turn around like and there was like i think a big difference too between 2022 and 2021 is that i think those guys like genuinely liked each other i don't know who it was in 2021 i have a suspicion on one guy but i mean on tommy fam because you know just the way he is. I mean, <laughs> I mean, and the way like he would yell, he like yelled at Bobby Dickerson in the dugout after him and Kim Clyde. He was like, keep your infielders yeah. effort away from me. Like, yeah, I think maybe him like maybe it, that was true that Hosmer was just being a stinker after we almost traded him. I mean, but I think Jace Tingler, you know, was just a bad fit. I mean, not that like, Jace Tingler totally sucked as a manager. I just think it was a little unfair to him. Like, and no experience as a manager. You throw him into an unusual 2020 and then 2021, he's dealt to deal with all these, like, highly paid superstars or big names, if they're not necessarily a superstar. And, you know, he's a guy with no experience who we brought over here. He was supposed to be a player development guy. So I think that was a little unfair to him. Like, it was kind of a bad fit. And, you know, I think there might have been some issues in that clubhouse in 2021, maybe with some of the coaches that we got rid of after that year, too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been... Because of what Tatis Sr. said about Bobby Dickerson, although you got to be careful with... <laughs> Believing stuff about Tatis Senior, we can get into that. Yeah, you got to be careful what Tatis Senior says and taking too much into that. But yeah, I think uh. there were definitely there were definitely people in 2021, whether that be players or coaches, that made something just wrong in that clubhouse. I think and 2022, it seemed like it, the guys generally liked each other and believed in each other, and that's why they didn't when they lose like six of ten or whatever. They didn't let it get down on them. They didn't let it derail the season. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it's an, an incredible roller coaster in 2022, but still they made the NLCS, and I think the players are thinking that 2023 they can go another step further. Yeah, I mean, I just gotta say that the that the, those whole those two weeks and the wild card against the Mets and the division series against the Dodgers were two of the craziest weeks in this area that I can remember sports-wise since the LT, Rivers, Gates, Vincent Jackson, Chargers, the late 2000s. Like, 
I have not seen anything in San Diego, even with the Aztecs' two Sweet 16 runs, since then with those first two, two and a half weeks in October. It was crazy, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> it was. It was awesome. I was at Game 3 against the Dodgers, and you know oh. the, the first home game with fans in 16 years, and the first time we ever won a home game with fans in attendance at Petco, and the atmosphere was unbelievable. It was electric that night. You know, my friend that I went to the game with, we met his fiance and our friends in the bars in the gas lamp after the game. You know, we were out there till like 1130, quarter to midnight at night. The place, every place was still hopping. Nobody was going home. You know, it was just wild down there those nights. And it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 you know, talk about Padre Twitter. You see that one clip of when the Padres qualified for the playoffs in 2020, the gas lamp just went crazy. Remember that? Yeah. You know, and they were like celebrating with the bus because they couldn't be in there with the, yes, for the game. Yes. Um, but uh, it was when we beat the Cardinals in the wild card, by the way. Is that what it was? Yeah, when we beat St. But, Louis in the wild card series. But there was no one in the stands, right. <laughs> which made it so weird. But which made, I think, which added, which I think contributed to the energy that we saw in the ballpark in the division series against the Dodgers, even the LCS against the Phillies, even though we split those two games, lost the series. Yeah, I mean, so it, you're right. It was an incredible run in those 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 two series. You know, Grisham's home run against, against the two home runs against the Mets. I mean, yeah, that was incredible. I, and the thing about that is, too, is like you can say like, well, we didn't win the World Series. Like, yeah, but I mean, it's like, does it does a gambler the first time he goes to the casino win the jackpot? No, no. I mean, not always. Not mm-hmm. that's very rare. Like, and it's like it was the first real playoff experience in a long time. And does like say it's a failure because we didn't win the World Series. Like the the whole thing was just we hadn't been there in a long time, and then we went further than people thought. I mean, people were like, "Oh, well, they'll just go to New York, lose to Scherzer, lose to Degrom. You know, they'll be done in two games." Which I didn't think that because I was like, I thought Darvish has a good tracker against the Mets, and then okay, we'll lose to Degrom game two, but we're not losing if it's Musgrove against Bassett game three. Like, right? And sure enough, I was totally right. So <laughs> the only thing I was wrong about was I did not expect us to hammer Scherzer the way we did in game one. Oh, that was unbelievable. Hey, we got a couple more comments here. Yeah, from, let's go. Let's go. So um, here we go. So let's take a look at some comments and um, and okay. So this is a bunch here from Brandon. Yeah, he says pretty sure we were projected to have at least less than eighty nine wins when Tatis got hurt. Oh yeah, I was I was like this is like a f- little over five hundred team. That was what I said with when Tatis got hurt. I'm like you know we got you know Bob Melvin to you know navigate you know the inevitable ups and downs and we the starting pitching should be better because you know we got rid of Larry Rothschild who was just bad and every Yankee fan warned me of that I tried to tell people that of course Padre Twitter <laughs> thought I was an idiot for it but and then we got Niebla over here you know obviously he was you know Cle- big in Cleveland's like pitching development and you know Cleveland develops pitchers better than anybody so I love that hire from day one so I figured you know you got him with Musgrove, Darvish, who was healthy again after injuries kind of derailed him in the second half of 21. You got Snell will probably be better with Niebla, and he really turned it on in the second half and in the playoffs. And then, you know, he figured with the other depth options, you get something out of them. Like, you got something out of Gore before you trade him in the Soto trade. And mm. So I figured that, you know, with the new, with Bob Melvin and and we actually had starting pitching like not all die on us in the second half of the season. Like, so I figured that with the starting pitching and Bob Melvin and, you know, we still had Machado, Cronenworth, like guys like that. I still figured like they'll keep them afloat, but you know, without Tatis, you know, 
for a third of the season. It unfortunately turned out to be the whole season. But I just didn't think that, you know, there was enough there to, like, really be a serious contender with Tatis missing time and still question marks in the lineup beyond yeah. those three guys. So It was just, it, it, it just when Tatis got hurt, I mean, it was, it was awful. But when he got busted and suspended, Ugh. we were so disappointed. Um, and it just seems like he's a different guy this year. He seems a lot more humble, a lot more focused. He's, he's matured. What do you think about him? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty pissed at him. And, of course, Padre Twitter jumped on me for being pissed at him, which I don't know why. Because, like, there was reason to be pissed at the guy. Like, yeah, he, I mean... He, we were we made those trades at the deadline. We were thinking, okay, we're going to make this trade and with so that we can have Soto, Tatis, Machado in our lineup for a playoff run. And then, yeah, I mean, but you listen to his interviews, you see what he's been saying, and you can just tell, like, he's changed this year. And I think that's going to make a big impact for the Padres. The last thing I want to say, we can get into that, last thing I want to say about last year real quick is that, you know, just getting past the Dodgers was like felt like such a oh my god we actually did this like <laughs> you know like you know yeah. we slayed the dragon yeah I mean and you can say well you lost the next series like all these Dodger fans that hate on us are like yeah they're like oh well where was your ring out of it it's like really we're gonna play that game okay UMBC lost their next game after they upset Virginia Though we believe Golden State Warriors, after they upset the defending Western Conference uh, champion Dallas Mavericks in 07, they lost the next round to Utah. Uh, when the Columbus Blue Jackets swept the Tampa Bay Lightning, who almost broke the points record in 2019, they lost the next series. Like People just automatically assume that it means nothing unless you win the World Series. No, I mean, a lot of these teams that get these massive upsets lose the next series like or don't win the championship. It's like... It's a huge accomplishment, and when it comes to the playoffs, there's a, there's really good teams in there. Like, you can lose to anybody, really. I mean, the Dodgers won 111 games. They lost us. We won 89. So, when you get into the playoffs, like, you can almost throw the records from the regular season out the window. Well, it's it's kind of like our March Madness bracket. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, so, I mean, anything could happen in, in these playoffs. But let's let's talk a little bit about the 2023 team. Yeah. And what, how do you see the, the season going yeah. for the Padres? Well, since we were just talking about Tatis, I can see that, like, you know, now that, you know, it's far removed and he's, you know, broken the silence in a sense and said, like, yeah, I messed up. It hurt me that I wasn't there in 2023. I want to work hard and prove him wrong. And, you know, you hear Musgrove was praising him, like, this dude has a great work ethic. He's going to prove a lot of people wrong. You got Cronenworth and Machado said, you know, you guys are forgetting how good it is. We're so happy to have him back. And, like, you got to realize that the problem with him isn't that he's a bad kid, okay? The problem with him is that, you know, growing up son of a major leaguer, you know, hype prospect, you know, when even like when he was being scouted, like his international sign and all that, like you got to remember that because of all that growing up, he was always told you can do no wrong. You're the greatest. You're the best. Like you're, he felt like indestructible because of that. And the whole thing. So he was treated like a child. He was immature. You know, we saw what happened in the dugout in September, 2021 with Machado and St. Louis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it was an immature kid who made one giant mistake that he just doubled and tripled down on. You know, obviously the mistake, you know, he was careless on the motorcycle, okay? He doubled down on it trying to hide the injury instead of trying to get it looked at right away. I know you're like, well, the Padres couldn't contact him because of the lockout. 
Um, there's some weird thing where like the player could contact certain doctors, just the team like themselves, like Preller and the front office couldn't contact him. Something like that. So he doubled down there and then he tripled down when he, you know, took whatever he took that had the PED in it to try and heal faster. Like instead of owning up to it, he doubled and tripled down to try and hide it, which is what immature kids do. So that just proves that he was an immature kid, but I think and hope would certainly hope. And I actually do think that he did learn his lesson from that. And I think what you got to realize about him, this is just as a player is like, I see, you know, it's mostly, you know, the stupid fan bases that generally hate us, you know, Dodger fans, Met fans, Philly (laughs) fans, which I don't understand Philly fans. Like, (laughs) <laughs> because it's like you beat us congrats yeah. like and even us we were like you know philly you beat us you were better than us in the series and then they're like oh you frauds we kicked your ass it's like it's like what it's like go say that to the go say that to the braves they beat you by how many games in the regular season and then you beat them in the playoffs like like we were a wild card team like you like well, it's just the, it's Philly fans. I, I mean, yeah. those guys, you know, they're they're loud, they're obnoxious. You know, the thing I always say is that Philly fans would boo their own grandma for burning cookies. <laughs> well, they boot Santa Claus, right? So, <laughs> so you know, uh, so it's just it's just Philly. Yeah. You know, give them their day. I yeah. mean, they had a good run. Yeah, I mean, so anyways, what I was saying was, you know, it's all these teams are like, oh, he can't do it without steroids. It's like. Like I said, he's never played a game on steroids. The kid's a freak athlete, one of the most talented players I've ever seen, and it might take him some time, you know, getting the timing back after a year and a half off and, you know, coming off the surgeries. Although he told Scan yesterday on the in-game interview after he came out that he felt 100%, which is good to see. And, you know, he has three hits the last two games, like I told you before we started this recording. Mm -hmm. You know, I think his timing, it's getting there. It's not all the way there, which you would expect after, you know, not seeing MLB pitching for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. But I think the timing isn't quite all the way there. And you can tell because, like, when he's in the box, like, I don't know if you can tell this, he's, like, looking the pitch, like, almost all the way into the glove. Like, I'd never seen him do that before when he takes a pitch. So I think that, to me, is just showing that the timing is not quite there, but he's getting there, and he's going to be good. Like, he might start slow when he first comes back, but after the last 20 games of the suspensions, but he's going to be good, and he's going to be a big part of this team. Yeah, I mean, I'm just so excited he's back. And it just seems like the fans are welcoming him back. The fans are giving him a second chance. So how do you like him in right field? I mean, like I said, the kid's a tremendous athlete, and once he gets past that learning curve that he's going to have, like he'll be fine out there. He's a tremendous athlete. He can go get the ball. Like He'll probably be able to go get balls with the best of them. He's an unbelievable athlete. Yeah, I think he's going to be great out there, and it just seems that the team's attitude is not so hung up on, I want to play shortstop. You know, it's We just want to win. See, that's another thing about Tatis and his maturity and what was wrong with the culture in 21 versus 22 is that you know Tatis kind of had this you know like I want to be a shortstop and was like not real happy about not playing shortstop you like people were pointing out with his body language in 2021 when he was playing and often I think part of that was you know being a coddled immature kid like I was talking about part of that was that the culture was kind of all over the place in 21 and now you see him, he's like, yeah, I want to be a shortstop. I want to be a center fielder. But if the team needs me in right field, like, that's where I'll be. Like, he said, I believe at fa- what tells me all you need to know about this team and their culture is that Tatis said when someone asked him what position he was going to play at FanFest, he was like, let me ask my manager on that. And then someone asked Cronenworth the same question. He's like, let me go ask Preller. It's like, <laughs> that's the kind of culture 
that you want to have. Yeah, for and that sure. And that's a huge credit to Bob Melvin. Like I said, that was a huge difference between 21 and 22. Well, I mean, think about... We got a couple more comments. We got a ton more. Yeah, yeah, there's no limit here. But think about both Cronenworth and Tatis. They're multi-position players. I mean, in the past, you had a right fielder like Hunter Renfro. He couldn't play shortstop. He couldn't play anywhere. You know, now we've got all these multi-player position, multi-position players. You got a four shortstop infield. Yeah, well, five <laughs> if you count Nola. Um, you know, so... Because he was a shortstop in the minor leagues. Right. So, but... You could never have asked these questions of what position you're going to play because everyone knew. But now they have all this flexibility. It invites interesting questions. I think this is a credit to Preller and the way he has assembled this roster. Yeah, I mean, and looking ahead to 2023, the reason – there's a lot of reasons I'm excited for this season, obviously. But for me, this offseason, why do we fall short in the NLCS against Philadelphia? I think there's two main reasons why. One – we needed a pitcher who could get the job done. I mean, and not even necessarily be good, just not totally suck. Because, I mean, Clevenger, you know, we stake him to a 4 nothing lead in the first inning of game four. He goes out, gives up three runs, doesn't get an out. You know, then we have to go to Martinez early. And then we have to use Manaya to cover the middle innings. He can't get it done. <laughs> like, if Clevenger yeah. goes three run, three innings allows three runs, which isn't even a good start, then we probably win that game because then you get Martinez in the middle innings, you get it to your back end, guys. I think we would have scored more runs in that game, too, because I think scoring three runs in the first inning allowed Phillies pitchers to reset, got their crowd back in the game. So, and I think if the series came back to San Diego, whether we were up 3-2 or down 3-2, we would have won that series because I don't think we were going to lose at home again. Yeah. Because game six, you know, Noah looked pretty gassed against us in game two and then against Houston in the World Series. And Snell, you know, he had that fourth inning where they had a bunch of bloop hits. Soto lost the ball in the sun. But the other four innings of game two, he was great. Yeah, he was. So I think we would, and then Musgrove wasn't going to lose a game seven at home. <laughs> the San Diego kid losing a game seven at home. No shot. No, no shot at all. And were you at any of the games in the Philly series? No, I was going to go to game six, how we forced the series back to San Diego. Hmm. Well, we were at the game when Soto lost the ball in the sun, and that was brutal. I mean, it was just kind of an unusual time. I think the game start like at 11 in the morning or 12. No, it was a one o'clock game. One o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just an odd start. Um, but everything you, that game, everything was going wrong. You thought the San Diego sports curse was going to kill us again. Yeah. And then they turned it around and they won it. Yeah. I mean, and then the three games in Philadelphia happened. But, you know, with that crowd and that lineup in that ballpark, I mean, it just happened. I mean, happened to Atlanta. Oh, yeah. And the the Astros, one of the only two games they lost the entire postseason was game three in Philadelphia. So it happened. It does happen. So anyways, the uh, back to what I was saying is that Clevenger not getting the job done. And then we just needed one more back because, you know, we had left a lot of guys on base, you know, in game three when we lost four to two. We left a lot of dudes on base. You know, we had the tying, run, tying and go-ahead runs in scoring position to end game five. So, like, one more bat, you figure, could have changed that series, too. Got that with Bogarts. And with the pitcher, you know, we got Michael Walker. He was 11-2, 3-3-2 ERA with Boston last year. Yeah, that's that was a nice pickup. Yeah. And I'll say this about Bogarts is that some people loved it. Some people hate it. They're like, well, why would you do that? You know, we have all these guys. I think all these guys who can play shortstop. I think the target was just getting one more bat regardless of position. Now, would I have preferred Jose Abreu, keep Cronenworth at second base, keep Kim at shortstop, and have, you know, a short-term deal? Absolutely. I would have, because uh, I've liked Jose Abreu ever since he came over from Cuba, when first with the White Sox in 2014. Would I have preferred Jose Abreu? Absolutely. Do I like the Bogart signing? Yes. 
Mm. You know, I, when they first got Bogarts, yeah, everyone was wondering who's going to play shortstop. But I think, isn't Kim a better defensive shortstop than Xander Bogarts? Yes, but I think part of the thing was with Kim, with uh, Bogarts was if we give you the contract, you're going to get at least one year at shortstop. Like, I don't think they made him promises beyond this year in terms of position, but they definitely promised him 23 at shortstop. Okay. So there was a promise of some kind there. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was also a bit of a hedge, right, in case they lost Soto. Um, you know, at least they'd still have Bogarts. Well, I think, Or even lost Machado. Yeah, that's what I'm going to get into next is, like, the Machado extension, too, is like, it's just so, this is another funny thing about Padre Twitter. You know, you, the people who hated the Bogarts contract were like, why are we doing this? Machado's <laughs> going to opt out. We're going to have to give him a contract. It's like, the funny thing is, Peter Seidler, who you should never doubt at this point, at his at Bogarts' introductory press conference, he said, I think somebody asked him something like, is this, you know, planning for Machado to opt out and leave? And he's like, no, our strong intent is to keep Manny Machado a Padre the rest of his career. And sure enough, despite him saying that, when Manny said he was going to opt out, Padre Twitter freaked out. And then <laughs> totally freaked out. <laughs> less than two weeks later, he signs an extension. You know, I never had a doubt that he that Manny was going to retire a Padre because I don't doubt Peter Seidler at this point. And, you know, if Manny keeps this up, he's going to be a hall, going to the Hall of Fame as a Padre. Only the fourth guy ever to do that. And him signing plus Tatis coming up in 2019 was the start of this turnaround, getting us out of the dark ages. So I'm really happy to see him stick around forever because of that. Yeah. Like he deserves to stick around here forever because he, him signing and Tatis coming up brought us out of that dark age. Well, he Manny seems legitimately happy here, right? Because like, think about what he went through in Baltimore, and he was young, and then he had some, you know, some friction there with the team and the fans. Goes to L.A. It was kind of a weird situation, weird fit. Yeah, it's like because it was like a fan base that like knew it was a team and fan base that knew he wasn't going to be there the next year because like they only got him because Seager was out that year so mm-hmm. like it was he was it was never going to be a long-term solution there like but but every other stadium he'd go to he was always the villain and then he comes to san diego and we just uh, had open arms gave him a big hug and, yeah. and and we love him and he loves san yeah, diego I mean, that's the thing is like he he constantly talks about how much he loves san diego how much he loves the fans and it's clear that him and seidler have a mutual admiration for each other so like I just thought, like, he's not going to leave that, and Seidler isn't going to be outbid. So I just knew he wasn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, so I I shared the same opinion. When everyone was freaking out when he said he was opting out, it was just just part of the process of how this negotiation goes. Um, A little bit of the theater of it all. But in the end... The Padres got their guys. So now you got Xander Bogarts, you got Manny Machado, you got Fernando Tatis, all on long term deals, Musgrove at two and Darvish. Yeah. So, so are, are they going to sign Soto? I mean, like I said, I wouldn't doubt Peter Seidler at this point. And the only thing about Soto is that he's a Boris client and they almost always go to free agency. That's the only reason like, I, I have doubts there. And it has nothing to do with Seidler, just the fact that he's a Boris client. I will say this, though. Money's not an issue because, you know, Seidler's firm is worth, what, three, four billion, I think I saw. Mm-hmm, something like and that. And then our minority owner is like, people have called him like the Mexican George Steinbrenner. Like, he's the owner of a Mexican league team. And like I think his brother, like, owned like the cell phone, co- the largest cell phone company in Mexico. So we have people forget about the minority order, minority owner 
who some people have said is like the Mexican George Steinbrenner. Oh, I, who, I don't even know who this guy is because I know. Well, it, it's, it's like Harp de Halu or something like that is his name. Hmm. Well, is Ron Fowler is still one of the owners, right? I don't think he's in there at all. I think um, I think Seidler completely bought him out and he's not even part of the group anymore. Oh, I'm interesting. pretty sure. Interesting. Because you never see him at like the press conferences and stuff anymore. Well, it seemed like those two guys flip-flopped roles, you know. The, they did. One became two and two became one. Yeah. And that was that was huge for this franchise because like Fowler wasn't you know cheap like some of the bad owners we've been stuck with here in San Diego now with just the Padres with the other teams that have left us like Fowler wasn't cheap like that but he would draw the line at a certain point because he was like I want to make X amount of money on this right but Siler's like whatever it takes to win I'm gonna make money either way and I don't think people realize that is that all the people are like how are they doing this it's like all these guys are making money either way even with um. I'm not going to get into all that because I don't really know too much about it. But even with like the whole regional sports network drama, like the Padres are still making money. I mean, they're going to sell out or close to sell out almost every game. And, you know, that comes with people buying their hot dogs, beer, popcorn, soda, all that stuff. The merchandise is flying off the shelves. Especially you got postseason gear. I got my 2022 postseason hat right here. Oh, right on. Okay. And then I got the October Rise shirt, you know, all that. Like all that. And then, you know, the. The what's the the Polaroid uh, book? Oh yeah, like the ones that were left over <laughs> mm-hmm. after the see one that season ticket holders got. They're gonna make money selling those too because everyone who isn't a season ticket holder that doesn't have one wants one, and mm-hmm. they're not all gonna get one, but people are gonna buy that. Oh yeah, I mean so, and then then they're like one of the favorite teams amongst fans all over the nation. I mean, it's like uh, cool to be a yeah. Padre fan, not just the nation. The world, too, because, you know, we got, you know, multiple Dominican superstars on our team. Mm-hmm. Bogarts, you know, represent the Netherlands in the World Baseball Classic. Kim is huge in South Korea. Darvish is massive in Japan. Mm-hmm. So we're like an almost an international team, too. Plus, we got a couple of Columbia guys, right? I mean, we've got... Um, Chris Matt. Chris Matt. I think the other one was Alfaro. Yeah, it was yeah, Alfaro. Yeah, so, so we did, but not anymore. Yeah, and then we had... Well, we had uh, Profar from Curacao for a while. Yes. So there was a time, I remember I looked it up, there were like eight different nations that were represented on the Padre roster, I think last year. Because um, we had to... There was a time we had Canadians, too, with Cal Quantrill and Josh Naylor. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's neat to be that team, that international team. And they're back in the brown, and and uh, it's all good. Yeah, so I think Juan Soto, since we've only really touched on him a little bit, is Juan Soto is going to have a monster year this year. Oh, yeah. Monster year this year. I mean, you know, last year he was dealing with the whole – Am I going to sign an extension to Washington? Are they going to trade me? Like, what's going on here? And then, you know, he had the back injury shortly after he came over, which I think he never quite got right from until right towards the end of the postseason run, which is the only thing that really hurts me about the postseason run is that I think those games four and five in Philadelphia, Soto was about to go on a tear, and we saw what he did against Houston and Verlander in the World Series when he was with Washington in 2019. So could he have done that for us if we'd seen Houston in the World Series? We'll never know. That's the only thing that really hurts me about that, because like I said, we way overachieved, and nobody expected us to get as far as we did. Well, I think a lot of people see Soto as leading Major League Baseball in war for 2023. Yeah. The thing about Soto is that left field, and you know, you can say, well, his defense sucked last year. Well, left field is a lot easier to play at Petco than right. So mm-hmm. he'll do fine there. And you know, now that he's, his, he's healthier this year, that should help him in that regard. Well, did you see the home runs he hit in the WBC? Yeah. He had two of them in one game, didn't he? No. Uh, oh, so one in, in two different games? 
Because I think he has a couple of home runs. No, he just has one. Cam okay. had the two homer game. Oh, okay. I'm you know, confusing Soto just the two. had the one. I mean, okay. You might be talking about how Machado hit a home run and then would have had two more if Lone Depot Park wasn't the most stupidly configured stadium <laughs> in baseball. Well, I mean, the point is, is that Soto's hitting bombs, and he's had an. Inc- I mean, his spring training numbers are off the chart. Wasn't he like eight for eleven before he left for the WBC? Yeah, it was something eight for like 11 that. Eight for eleven with two walks or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the guy we're talking about. You know, I'm not going to say, you know, t- early 2000s bonds when he was roiding, but, you know, uh, 1990s kind of bond season, like when he first came over from Pittsburgh to San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, a guy who hits like 310, you know, he has like a 460 on base, hits, you know, close to 40 home runs. We can see that kind of season from Juan Soto this year. Wow. Because he knows he's going to be here for the short term, at least. He's not worried about, you know, is he going to sign an extension or get traded? You know, he's comfortable in a new environment. You know, like I said, he's healthy again. I think that back injury was why he kind of struggled for in September last year. And, and they can't pitch around him. No, I mean he's not so, at all. him because they'll put him in the number two slot, right? Yeah, I'm assuming so. And so, how do you see the batting order lining up? Well, I think I think you're going to see um, Tati- when everybody's in there. I think you'll see Tatis lead off, Soto second, Machado third, Bogarts fourth. Yeah, that's what it seems like. I think the first twenty games. When Tatis is still starting the end of suspension, I think you'll. I actually think you're going to see Carpenter in the leadoff spot then, because mm. you know Carpenter's always been a guy who draws a lot of walks. He's up there in terms of most walks, and you know he had two walks yesterday against San Francisco in the game. Well, and and I think Hassan Kim is a, is another possibility. Uh, a pitcher, sure. I mean, he yeah. leadoff against lefties late in the season and in the playoffs last year. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of possibilities. The Carpenter signing is interesting too because he. I think they're thinking of him as the primary DH against the right-handed pitching. Right, but he can play in the corner outfields and the corner infields if you in a pinch, right? Yeah, and I think I do think that against tough right-handers, you might see him play at first and Cronworth at second because you know Kim's has kind of extreme splits. So I think against a really tough righty, you might see him at first and Cronworth at second. That's interesting. So when they start the season here, who do you think is going to be the starting right fielder? Uh, I don't know how you can deny David Dahl at this point. He's had a really good spring. Mm-hmm. Or at least a Dahl and a Zokar platoon, because those guys have had pretty good springs. I'm really impressed with the Zokar, the way he's like, yeah, I needed to, you know, put in some work and make a couple changes to make this team. And, you know, he's hitting for more power this spring. And, you know, he's been fast always, but, you know, he didn't always know what he was doing on the bases last year. Like, he'd overslide the base or <laughs> yeah, not get a good jump. But, <laughs> you know, he's obviously he's still fast, but... Now he's fast, and he knows what he seems like. He knows what he's doing more on the base pass now. Yeah, I mean he's really like Melvin was commenting about how he looks so good, and he's made these adjustments that have given him power. But David Dahl to me is interesting because he was an all star. Yes, um, he's had a great track record. But he was was he hurt for a couple of years, or why was he so down for a while? It was a bunch of things. You know, obviously shortened season in twenty twenty. It was just kind of weird for everybody. Then he really struggled with Texas in twenty one. I think he was dealing with some injuries. And he's always kind of dealt with injuries. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, he's looked pretty good this spring, though. He's looked a lot like the guy that did damage against us when he was in Colorado. Yeah, so let's break this down because I, I kind of put together what I believe is going to be the 26-man roster. Okay. You know, so how, how do you think the – we'll leave pitching for last, but the 13 or so position players, who do you think they're going to be? Well, I mean, obviously you have your Machado, Bogarts, Kim, Cronworth, infield. Nola's your catcher. 
and then you'll have the Carpenter Cruz platoon at DH, probably Dahl Zokar platoon and right to start, Grisham center, Soto left. I don't think this is going to be a hot take because we signed him to a major league contract. I don't think Adam Engel makes this team just because I don't know how you can deny a Zokar at this point. Adam Engel's been limited, and, you know, it's like, what, $1 million contract? That's nothing to Peter Seidler. Mm-hmm. Like, well, but he, you know, they could just put him on the injured list, sure, because he's still. They can use that as an excuse. I mean, he's played what two spring games? Yeah, I mean, so he's not he's not back. But what do you think about Lopes? Does Lopes make the team? I would love to see Tim Lopes on this team. He has mm-hmm. killed it this spring. I mean, I know there's forty man roster considerations, but I don't know how you can deny Tim Lopes. He's hitting like four sixty this spring. Well, they're going to need one more utility infielder. I mean, who else would it be other than him? I mean, I kind of like what Odor's shown. I didn't really have any expectations when they signed him, but, you know, he had two homers the other day against Oakland. You know, he's been a lot more patient at the plate than I remembered him in Texas, which was always what held him back in Texas, was that he just swung at way too many pitches. Like, he was such a free swinger. You know, I always had a really low on base, but like, he's always had power. He's, you know, got a decent glove at second and third base, and he throws a mean right hook if we ever get in a benches clearing brawl. <laughs> well, that's what, that's the one thing I always think about he's him. He's an enforcer. Yes, him and, what was it, Bautista, he got yeah. in, the, in the end of the fight. So, you know, I, I kind of, I have on mine, you know, the obvious starters, but I have, uh, yeah, Dahl and Azokar and Lopes making the team. Yeah, and then Campy Sano, the backup catcher. Yeah, of course. And so that, that's 13 position players. You know, you have your, um, you have your, Eight, is it eight? Uh, no, it's a nine. No, the nine starters because the DH is one of them, and then you've got the the one, two, three, four, five off the bench. So it's Lopes, Azucar, Dahl, and Cruz. Um, what about the pitching staff? How do you think that one's going to shake out? So I mean, Darvish will probably be your opening day starter. Then you got Snell next. Musgrove will probably miss a starter too. Although it sounds like he's coming along a lot better than we thought, which was mm-hmm. awesome to see. I think obviously Waka. You think you'll have Martinez and Lugo in there, and I got. I want to talk about Seth Lugo real quick. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I mean, a lot of people kind of were. It didn't make a lot of sense. And it was like you're going to try him as a starter. He's mostly been a reliever, but I mean, he has a starter repertoire. And think about this: the Dodgers were interested in him as a starter. So if the Dodgers see something in him that can make him as a starter, why would we not want that? Yeah. And he's looked pretty good this spring. I mean, sometimes the command's not always there. Sometimes he leaves a pitch over the plate, or sometimes he walks guys. But he gets out of the jams. Like, he'll get a double play ball, and not a lot of guys barrel him up. He gets strikeouts. Like, I think he'll be at least, he'll probably only be a five-inning pitcher. But, you know, if he goes five innings, one or two runs, that's fine. And then playoffs come around. Him and Martinez are multi-inning weapons out of the bullpen, which is so huge. So do you think they go with a six-man rotation? Yeah, and I think, well, yes, I do. And you're wondering, well, who's going to be the sixth guy with Musgrove out at the start of the year? I'm going to go with Jay Groom. I think he's really impressed me this spring. Yeah, I mean, Groom has been terrific. I I think Groom makes the team. I, mean, I think he's going to be the sixth starter, yeah. And, and then he's also a long reliever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Ryan Weathers continues to struggle. Morahone may be hurt again. Yeah, I mean, you just can't count on Morahone for anything. Like, he lets innings snowball on him. Like, you saw game two against the Mets in the playoffs. Like, he just lets innings snowball on him. He's always hurt. You just can't count on the guy. I mean, the stuff's really good, but you just can't count on the guy. I mean, I was kind of rooting for Honeywell, too. You know, I thought he was going to have a shot, yeah. but he hasn't panned out, really. I mean, the thing about Honeywell is, like, yeah, the numbers, like, in terms of, like, the ERA and all that don't look good. But, I mean, he gets strikeouts, and he doesn't walk 
an insane amount of people. He just is having problems with the home run ball, which, you know, spring training, you know, sometimes they get cheap home runs. So right. there might be something with Honeywell. And maybe you keep him as a long reliever, at least while Musgrove's out and Groom's is, Groom is starting. So who's in the bullpen then? If if let's just assume for sake of discussion that Musgrove is part of the starting six, okay? Because okay, he'll be back in the first week or two. So that leaves you about seven or so bullpen guys. Who do you got? Well, if we're assuming Musgrove is just you know doesn't miss a turn, but he's like at the back, mm-hmm. which is kind of what I saw. I think it was Caswell saying yesterday, or. So let's just say Groom's longer reliever. Obviously, you got your Hater, Suarez, Garcia at the end. Are we assuming Pomerantz is ready for opening day or not? I think no. Okay. So oh, so if he's not ready, then obviously you're going to have Tim Hill. I know he had a rough day yesterday, but I mean, mm-hmm. it's spring training. Like, that's what these games are for. See what went wrong. And Tim Hill will be a good reliever for us like he was last year. How about uh, Chris Matt or Wilson? Yeah. Chris Matt and Wilson will be there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so I mean that's who I've got on my my squad. But they got options down there. It's really nice to have. Yeah, there's a ton of players here, but like other guys, like you know, Weathers doesn't make it. Kinnear doesn't make it. No. Kerr, Castillo. You kind of hope that he would I come like, back. I like Castillo, and I really loved him. Like the year he was, you know, somewhat healthy for us in 2018. Like I was at his major league debut when he came in. And I mean, we were winning by like five or six runs, but still, he came into the game. We were playing Cincinnati. He struck out, in order, Joey Votto, who's a future Hall of Famer, and Eugenio Suarez, who was an all-star that year, and Adam Duvall, who was an all-star two years prior and, you know, was a 30-home run guy. He struck out those three dudes in order in his Major League debut, and I was just, like, blown away. I'm like, okay, this kid's going to be really good. I mean, unfortunately, he's had a lot of injuries. I really like the guy, but, I mean... Hopefully you just you can keep him at AAA in case like you need him. He doesn't seem like quite the same guy that he was then, but still there might be something there, and I hope they keep him around at AAA in case they need him. Well, I think we learned that the last couple of years is they use the forty man roster. I mean that there's a there's a, a churn a cycle of guys that go get injured, get sent down, get sent up. So it's not just 26. It's probably like 33 yeah. guys that are going to be see, active. You see them say all the time, um, they say, well, you don't win with your 26 guys. You win with your 36. Yeah, that sounds about right. So, I mean, a couple of other guys on this list, like Avila, I don't think he makes it. No. Um, and then, you know, Brandon Dixon, you talk about position players. I mean, he's just been awful. Okay, I'll, I'll say this out, Brandon Dixon. Is is it cool that you know he's with he was an Escondido guy grew up a Padres fan like cool is he a nice guy who tries his hardest I'm sure he is but you know he's just been terrible this spring and his major league track record in the regular season speaks for itself and it's showing on the field this spring well how about uh, La Jolla Country Days um, Alfonso Rivas I mean he's been pretty good this spring uh, I'll say this about Rivas when he first came up with the Cubs a couple years ago I was like okay this guy you know might have upside he really struggled last year I mean. And he's limited in the sense that, like, you know, he doesn't, you know, like, steal bases. He's not a huge home run hitter. And, you know, he's pretty much first base only. But he's got a good glove over there. I think he's got a pretty good approach at the plate. I really hope they can keep him at El Paso. And the same thing goes for Odor if he doesn't make the Major League team. What do you think of the two young guys, Merrill and uh, and the catcher, Salas? Okay. Salas, first of all, 16 years old, you're playing in a Cactus League game. Like, you could literally have three pass balls and strike out both at bats, and I'd still be impressed that you're there at that <laughs> yeah, age. Yeah, right. But he wasn't totally overmatched, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm impressed by him. How could he not be? I think, and I'm glad you mentioned Salas and Merrill. Merrill, I think, is going to be a pretty good player. I'm glad you mentioned those guys because some people are like, well, you can't just keep 
signing all these guys. Mentioned you're going to need homegrown talent. Like, well, I think they're counting on Salas and Merrill to come up for them and be like cheap homegrown talent, so that you can afford another big contract. Like, say you sign Soto or he goes, but you sign Otani. Like, because like the the rumors are out there, and you're like, well, at some point, isn't that just going to be like no matter how rich the owner is, like there's a limit? But like. Because, you, you know, there's other players on the roster. I think they're counting on guys like Salas and Merrill and like a Jay Groom, like down the road, the high school kid, uh, Lesko, that we drafted. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in the short, in the medium term, like in the next 24, 25 kind of years, like the the pitcher we drafted from Iowa, you know, not such a high ceiling, but a guy who can get it done in the major league. I think Adam Major or something like that, his name is, mm-hmm. the pitcher we drafted from Iowa last year in the draft. Like guys like that. And I mentioned Groom. I think you're just going to be counting on guys like that to like give you something while not costing you anything so that you can afford to keep signing all these superstars to big contracts. So that's why I think uh, Salas and Merrill come into play. And neither of them have looked overmatched. I mean, I know it was just one game for Salas, but Merrill's been pretty impressive. So, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned those guys. I think those guys are going to be a big part of the future for us. Well, think about um, Jacob Cronenworth, right? We we learned that's how he likes to be referred to as Jacob. (laughs) But Jacob Cronenworth, you think about him. I mean, what a key player. And he's making close to the major league minimum, right? Or did he go through arbitration? Well, I think he um, had his first year of arbitration. So I think he's making like three or four million this year. But still, a guy like that, you know, he's got a good glove at, you know, I think I've said this before. I think Cronenworth could legitimately win a gold glove at all four infield positions. Mm-hmm. So a guy who's got a good glove in multiple positions, he's a clutch hitter, and I think he's going to have more of a year overall like he did in 20 and 21 this year. Because if you remember last year, you know, like I said, everything was weird because like the lockout short in spring last year. And you remember last year, early on in the spring, like he was hell out of workouts at the start because, you know, he had a, like a groin injury or something. And he just, he started slow, never really, he had spurts, but never really got back to, you know, until the playoffs, he never got back to like 21 and 20 Jay Cronenworth. And then what was interesting about that is that the game against San Francisco a couple weeks ago in Scottsdale, the game where he hit the triple that scored Tatis every walked in his first play appearance back. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Gwynn Jr. said on the radio that Cronenworth told him that that was the best he'd felt in a while, and like he had a bunch of like nagging injuries in 21. I tweeted Tony Gwynn Jr. asking him if Cronenworth told him like what was bothering him. I never got a response, but mm-hmm. still, the fact that you know he might have been dealing with nagging injuries, and that's why he wasn't you know the Jake Cronenworth we saw in 20 and 21. I mean, he's probably gonna. I think he's gonna have a pretty good year because, and I've said this about Cronenworth too, is that I think the problem with him last year was that. You know, he was like, because you heard so much, you know, heading into the lockout, you know, and during the lockout, like, how are the Padres going to add to their offense? You know, they, they relied too much on Machado, Tatis, Cronenworth, and then there was no Tatis. I think Cronenworth thought, oh, shoot, you know, I got to try to, you know, drive the ball, hit more home runs. And he just kept getting under balls and, like, trying to hit too many home runs. And I got for Tatis being out, you know, I think now that, you know, Tatis is back, you got Bogarts, full year of Soto, you know, now he can get back to being that, like, line drive, complimentary guy who hits, like, fifth, sixth in the order. Well, I mean, I last, think he's going to have a great year. Last year, that he was batting third for a good portion. Right. Of, and you're thinking this was the throw in on the trade that we got from you know the Tommy Pham trade. Right. And suddenly he's batting third um, and he's an all star. I mean, what a great what a great opportunity that he's cashed in on. And he's another great guy to root for. Yeah. You know, and it's just kind of fun too. you know, his background being a Michigan guy and a hockey guy. Yeah. You know, so it's it's neat. It's neat stuff. So what other what other thoughts you have on the Padres? 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned him being a you mentioned him being a Michigan guy. It's like okay, that makes sense because like you know when we finally got past the Dodgers in the playoffs, you know that's you know Michigan's finally gone past Ohio State the past two years in football. It's like Cronenworth's a Michigan guy, and he was a huge reason why we beat the Dodgers. That's kind of fitting. Yeah, it is. Like, that does it kind of does fit. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, we got a couple more comments here. Yeah, let's let's go. Okay, so uh, this what's is, Yuri got here? Yuri says the Padres finally have a great owner in Seidler. Who cares about winning? I remember the Tom Werner years. Those fire sales burned the fan base. I mean, Tom Werner was terrible. I mean, obviously the '93 fire sale, but it. You go back with San Diego and its sports owners over the years. I mean, you know, you had Gene Klein. You know traded away two key Charger players in the Eric Coriel era because of a contract dispute, and then they lose two straight AFC Championship games. Like, And then, you know, he, you know, strips down the payroll and then sells the team to the Spanos family. And then, you know, obviously we had to deal with more ad with the Padres. and Yeah, I mean, he, he and then bought the team Donald on Sterling, you know, took the Clippers out of San Diego <laughs> back in the day. So it's not just Tom Warner, but he makes a great point. But again, it's just not just Tom Warner. We've had a long history of bad sports owners here, which is why we deserve Peter Seidler more than anybody. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but think about Tom Warner. He got rid of McGriff. He got rid of Sheffield. Yes. Right? He. By the way, congrats to McGriff on the Hall of Fame. Well deserved. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I can't believe it took him that long. And I think the only reason it took him that long is because of the player strike. Because if not for the player strike, he would have hit 500 home runs and gotten in like oh. way sooner. So congrats to him. Yeah. That dude was, you know, hitting 35 home runs every year like it was nothing mm-hmm. back in the 80s and 90s. So well deserved for him. So who else was, I mean, I always, I always think of the Sheffield and, and the McGriff and the fire sale. I know there were probably others. But that was just a funky time because the Padres were sort of competitive in the early 90s, late 80s. I mean, you went 82 and 80 when you had Tony, Sheffield, and... Oh, the four and tops? McGriff. McGriff, and who was the fourth guy? Tony Fernandez? Yes, thank you. Yeah. So you had, like, upside there, but Warner just blew it up. Yeah, he did. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you, Yuri. I think it's it's just great to see, a, uh, you know, a great opportunity here with a great ownership. So, got a couple more comments. Let's see if we can get them in as well. Um, you, got and, to, you got Tom there has the uh, other minority. I'll get to Tom in a mix. But Brandon says... Phillies got karma when their fan base chanted they wanted Houston and they lost the series. Remember when Yankees fans chanted that they were wanting the Red Sox in 18 and Houston in 2022 says they got karma. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder what the I do wonder what the what the line where the line is drawn that was like between like it being like it catching up to you and coming back to bite you or not, because two friends and I went to a bar to watch game three against the Mets and seconds after the final out people started chanting beat LA and we did so <laughs> what I just I'm curious like where do you draw the line with you know okay you know you're fired up for your team and okay you're being cocky and you're gonna get burned like I, I just wonder where the line is on that yeah I mean, that's a tough one but I think for Padre fans we've been so you know we, we've, been, we've been so scorned so cursed for so long that you know give us our day yeah. Okay. So here's here's Tom. He's got a comment as it's, well. I think it's the minority, uh, the Mexican minority owner I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, Alfredo Harp Hilu. Yeah. Okay. There that's his go. name. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know anything about this gentleman, so I'm going to look him up. Yeah. Apparently, he's like he owns one of the Mexican league teams, and like the family's like super involved in like the big businesses and the huge businesses in Mexico. 
I mean, it's still what an incredible opportunity for the Padres to build that fan base in Baja and further into Mexico. I mean, we're playing a series against the Giants in Mexico City. I mean, that's terrific. In late April. Yeah, that's going to be great. So um, if, you know, and then having Mexican ownership as part of the group, I mean, that can only be good for the franchise. Yeah. Yeah, man. Absolutely. That's awesome stuff. All right. So now that we kind of talked about the team, you got anything else on the team this year? Well, I mean, I, I got a couple of comments. We were talking about the Soto contract. I think we already kind of covered that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about the Bally's deal, but you, you, but then I'll just say this: is there's been late breaking news that now the pop, the Major League Baseball is going to buy out Bally's and all those regional networks. And so, as Padre fans, we might be getting streaming for free from MLB. I mean, free. I mean, obviously we don't want to see the Bally's thing happen. Like it mm-hmm. just sucks. Like people are going to lose jobs at Bally's because of it and lighter livelihoods. And that's just unfortunate for them. Mm-hmm. It really sucks for them. But as from a Padre fan standpoint, if we can get free streaming while still listening to Dawn and mud, Oh like, yeah. What, what can beat that? Like if we got our free streaming and listening to Dawn and mud, call the game still that works for me. Yeah, so, you know, I... Plus, you know, I'll be... Plus, for me personally, I'll be at, you know, my 30 to 40 games. And if I'm not home during a game, I'll be listening to Jesse and Tony Jr. on the radio on the MLB app, so... Do you you have season tickets? Well, my dad and I have the 20... My dad has the 20-game package Mm -hmm. in... We're a couple rows behind... A couple rows back near the right field foul pole. Oh, nice. So so we got our 20 games there, and then I usually pick up a couple games, you know... If a friend's going or a bunch, a group of my friends are going, I want to meet them or there's a matchup I want to see that we don't have tickets to. I will pick those games up. And then a couple friends and I are talking about maybe going up to L.A. for um, the se- the second Saturday in, Mar- in May. We think well, a couple of friends and I have preliminarily discussed going up to L.A. for one of those. Um, I got my friend that I mentioned earlier. He's getting married in Michigan in July, the same weekend the Padres are playing the Tigers in Detroit. Oh, perfect. So I may trek across state before going home to check out that Sunday game. I don't know yet. I'll have to look into that more. I heard a couple of our friends are doing that. I'm not sure who, though. I'll have to talk to them about that. You know, I'm my best friend who lives in Charlotte now. So actually the second weekend of first weekend of April, sorry, when we play the Braves in Atlanta, I am going out there and he's going to come down from Charlotte for the Saturday game. We're going to go to that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So. I'm going to, you know, go to my probably around 30 home games, a couple away games. And when I'm not home, I'll be when I'm home, I'll be watching the game, of course. And when I'm not home, I'll be listening to Tony Jr. and Jesse. And I kind of like if cause I got a lot of friends that I talk to on PlayStation, too. So sometimes I like to have a game on my playing on my computer while I talk to them on PlayStation. So mm-hmm. either way, I'll be watching the game, whether it's on Bally or streaming on a, on the computer or whatever. I'll be watching, listening to Don and Mud and watching the game. If I'm home, if I'm not home, I'll be listening to Tony Jr. and Jesse on the radio. I'll be at, like I said, 30 games. So nothing will change for me from a fan viewing standpoint. Okay, well, good. You know, I I recently signed up with DirecTV and um, and got their streaming package and Bally's is part of it. Um, but, you know, that was like, I think it was $89 for the first few months and then it goes to $99 a month. So if I could, you know, jettison that and go and just stream off of MLB, that'd be sweet, especially if it's free. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of why... The regional sports network and, you know, Bally and regional sports, part of the reason that's about to come crashing down is because of 
cord cutters. I mean, people are streaming, you know, the YouTube TV. Um, what's the other one? I can't. God, I'm drawing Hulu. Thank you. Yeah. Like people are like ditching cable for like YouTube TV, Hulu, all right. this kind of stuff. Like, yeah. That's why Re- regional sports network is falling apart. I think what you're going to see in the future is kind of what MLS is doing. Like they have the MLS package where they show all the games on like an MLS channel on Apple TV. I think you're going to start seeing stuff like that for uh, football, basketball, and hockey going forward. I mean, obviously, the NFL already has their almost exclusively national TV, and it just depends which game you get, depending on what region you're in. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's what's going to happen here. Um, and I think it seems like baseball has been sort of slow to get into the streaming world. Yes. I mean, the NFL is on Amazon Prime, yeah. and you know the NBA has been very forward-thinking in terms of streaming that's and one digital. Of the many things I give Adam Silver credit for yeah. is that I think Adam Silver is the best of the four Commissioners for stuff like that. Adam Silver is a really smart guy who's always thinking ahead on stuff like that. Yeah. I, I mean, he's a great guy. He looks a little bit like a space alien, but otherwise, he's a good guy. So, um, all good, man. So, t- what else we got for the Padres? Have we covered it all? All right. There's a couple more things I want to talk about. Not necessarily about the team, but I got to ask you because I got a couple nuggets on this. Um, is this the year? Is this finally the year? <laughs> For the Padres, yeah, is this the year? Do you I, think it's? Do you think it's going to be the year? I think so. Yeah, I mean, what? what you can't. Has there ever been a roster that's been assembled that's better than this one in in, all, in, in, in history of all sports? I mean, this is an incredible lineup. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely the best in Padre history. Like, oh yeah, for it's sure. the best. I mean, this this team blows ninety eight out of the water, if you ask me. Oh yeah. I mean, but even especially you, on the offensive side. But, but you go back to like those Yankee teams with you know with Jeter and and you know that all that whole lineup in the '90s and 2000s. Yeah, this team is better than that. You know, you look at any like the, the, the last team that might have been this much of a juggernaut might have been the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati in the '70s. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like superstar talent on the roster, yeah, I do worry a little bit, like. Because, you know, I like him, but what exactly is he? What are we going to get from Grisham? What are we going to get from Noel? Although I think Noel is going to be a lot better this year. Because I think last year, you know, he's trying to figure out the pitching staff with a new pitching coach in a lockout short in spring. So I think he'll be better this year. But mm-hmm. still, I mean, the bottom three might be like, I don't know. The the pitching, you know, it's pretty good. But is it elite? I don't know. It's a pretty dang good roster. Oh, God. <laughs> and this really could be the year. I mean, you know, we're coming off a heartbreak, a tough loss in the NLCS. I mean, I know it was only five games, but all those games we lost, we could have won, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've talked about this when I've been on here before in years past, is that teams, there's aims to be, and it seems to be especially in the last, like, 20 years, you see, like, a team have a heartbreaking defeat in the playoffs, and then they come back, and finish the job the next year. I mean, look at 2003, the Red Sox, you know, Grady Little leaves Pedro in the game. They blow the 5 2 in the eighth inning of the Yankees. Aaron Boone hits the walk-off home run. What do the Red Sox come back and do the next year? They play the Yankees again, the ALCS. Down 0-3, win four straight, break the curse by sweeping St. Louis. You look at in 2012, the Seahawks, you know, Seattle Seahawks, they had that tough, NFC Championship game, I'm sorry, NFC Divisional loss to Atlanta where Matt Bryant made the long field goal at the end of the game. What do they? What does Seattle come back and do next year? They win the Super Bowl. You look at going back to 2011, you remember LeBron and the Big Three. Oh, yeah. They lost to Dallas in an upset in 2011. What did they come back and do the next year? They beat a 
very good Oklahoma City team that had, you know, Durant, Westbrook, James Harden. They beat them in five games the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, look at 2013, San Antonio Spurs. Lose that heartbreaker to LeBron in the heat, you know. J- LeBron misses the three. James puts it up, but three won't go. <laughs> Rebound, Bosh, back out to Allen, three-pointer, bang! By the way, Mike Breen's a great announcer. But, you know, San Antonio suffers that heartbreaking defeat in Game 6. They lose a tight Game 7. They come back the next year, they beat LeBron in the Heat in five games. 2015 Cleveland Cavaliers, you know, they go up 2-1 on Golden State. They lose in the last three. You know, Kyrie was hurt. Kevin Love was hurt. Next year, they come back, play the Warriors again. They fall behind 3-1, win the last three, win Cleveland's first sports championship in a half century. You look at 2016, North Carolina in the NCAA championship. They lose on the buzzer beater to Chris Jenkins and Villanova. They come back the next year, bounce back, beat Gonzaga. You look at in the Kansas City Chiefs, the Mahomes era, their two worst season results in the Mahomes era, 2018 and 21. They lost the AFC championship game in overtime. Both years, they came back and won the Super Bowl the next year. Oh, wow. So... You look at so there's hope. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of teams like that suffer this heartbreaking defeat in the postseason, and then they come back the next year and they finish the job. You look at 2018. You know Virginia, they become the first one to lose to a 16 when they lose to UMBC. What do they do? They come back the next year and win the national championship. Wow, I mean, so there's a lot. There's a great track record there, but I'll tell you what: the the Mets and the Braves are going to be tough outs when we get to the playoffs. Okay, I'll say this about the Mets though: is that Quintana's already out till the summer. It sounds like, and Verlander and Scherzer, they're great pitchers, but they're way up there in age. And we, yeah, and we we beat Scherzer in the playoffs last year, and we got a better lineup this year. So I've no, and Darvish has their number. And Musgrove, too, so much so that they had to accuse him of cheating. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I'm not worried about the Mets for that reason because – and Verlander, you know, last year he pitched all the way through the World Series, you know, coming off of Tommy John. And now he's 40. Like, is he a guarantee to stay healthy? No. So, like – and it just seems like the Mets – something always happens with the Mets. Mm-hmm. Like, you mean they, they blew the leads in the NL East in 07 and 08 – they choked against Atlanta and had to play us in the wild card last year. It's something always happens with the Mets. And the Braves are a great team. And personally, I think the Braves have the best team on paper in the National League. But, I mean, we seem to play well against them. Phil, what happened in the NLCS last year, I really think if we played anybody else in the NLCS, well, besides the Dodgers and Mets, obviously, because we already beat them. Like, if we played St. Louis or the Atlanta, I think we would have won. I just think, for whatever reason, we don't match up well with Philadelphia. Yeah, that was an odd because you think we just don't match up well with them. That's what happened there. And they were the last ones in, you know. Into oh, the I want to mention that. So they were the last ones in. So if anyone had the right to complain about the format, it would have been us because we lost to a team that wouldn't have been in in previous years. Right. Yet Dodger fans are like, oh, they shouldn't even be in the format. It's like, yeah, there's been two wild card teams since 2012. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you really think that it had an advantage to us that we had to burn our top three pitchers playing across the country in New York, had to fly back across the country to L.A. with our number four star against your number one, yet the format was unfair in our favor? Like, that doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. But, you know, when the, talking about the Mets, um, when they 
when they signed Correa, you know, I know obviously that whole thing went sideways. Yeah. But I thought the Mets were going to be like, imagine that lineup with Carlos Correa in it. Oh, I know. I mean, it would have been unbelievable. But I, I think this is going to be a great season. The Dodgers seem to have taken a step back, but these young pitchers are looking pretty good for L.A. Okay, I'll say this about the Dodgers, too, is like, yes, they are not as good as last year. They won't win 111 games again. I don't even think they get to 100. I think they'll sit between 95 and 100. But to me, the Dodgers are most dangerous when people are like, oh, they might have a down year. They might not be the same Dodgers. I think that's when they're the most dangerous. So that does concern me a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you can't count those guys out. I mean, you still got Mookie and Freddie and Will Smith's the top three catcher, if you ask me. Oh, for sure. I mean, he's really good. So um, he'll probably be catching for USA in their next game. Okay. Well, will you do the fist bump? <laughs> oh, yeah. come on. You, uh, yeah, we got burned by that against Mexico. Come on, man. I know. <laughs> come on. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on WBC, by the way? It's fun. I mean, I love watching it. I love that. It's so cool that we actually have a good team with, you know, legit players in it and, you know, superstar players in it, actually. Because mm-hmm. like, in 2017, the last time there was a World Baseball Classic, it's like, oh, Chasin pitched like two or three innings for Venezuela. Solarte got in the game for Venezuela. Um, Castillo's in our minor league system. He pitched an inning for Venezuela. Like, that was what we had to look forward to, like, in terms of our guys. Mm-hmm. In the last time there was WEC, and now that we got all these stars that are playing it, that are on our team. And even Kim, you know, is a more notable player than those guys I mentioned. Well, imagine if the DR had Tatis on that oh. in that lineup with oh. Soto and Machado. They're already loaded. I mean, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, so, I, I mean, what you know what's interesting to me is that I've been watching a lot of spring training games and noticing the clock, right, and the pitch clock and the pace of the game. And I was like, okay, this is going well. But then I watched the WBC games with no pitch clock, and it seems like it really drags. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was never one of those – I, I was I'll never be one of those guys that was like baseball's too slow. We got to speed up the game because to me, if you're by do, by speed up the game like that, you're trying to appeal to people who wouldn't watch anyways. Mm-hmm. So and I've never thought of baseball. I love the sport too much. I think it's like too slow or anything like that. So I was never one of those guys that like said we got to speed up the game, pace of play, all that. Like I enjoyed baseball at the pace it was played, but watching these games without a pitch clock after watching spring training games with a pitch clock does kind of feel long. I mean, mm-hmm. it does drag a little bit. I mean, that's just because I'm used to seeing, I got used to seeing games with the pitch clock. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a great innovation. I mean, the pitch, the, the clock was great for basketball, right? Yes. The shot clock. Yeah. So this is sort of kind of like that. You can't have an 85 Villanova just passing the ball around for a whole minute against Georgetown kind yeah. of deal anymore. Yeah. Or like it was the four corners offense with uh, Dean Smith at North Carolina. So this is, to me, I think an interesting innovation. Yeah. Um, but what about the other rules changes? The banning of the shift, the bigger bases? you have any thoughts on those? Okay. The banning of the shift, to me... I mean, I get it. You want more offense, but like Joey Gallo hits under 200 because he's stubborn and doesn't, you know, try to hit the ball the other way or try and find a hole instead of just trying to hit every ball 800 feet. Like the shift will improve offense, but there are some guys who are still going to struggle regardless of the shift just because of their stubborn and one-sided approach to hitting. The re- My thing about the shift that I always say about the shift is think about if they did all this, that shifting stuff when Tony Gwynn played, I mean, you know, he was famous for the hit through the 5-5 five, five hole, right? Mm-hmm. Probably have the third baseman on the line, the shortstop standing literally in the hole, and the second baseman on the other side of the bag. You know what Tony Gwynn would have done? 
He would have stepped out of the box, given one of those laughs everyone loved on him that yeah. he was famous for, started laughing, just started hitting ground balls and line drives like right through where um the second baseman would normally be, and he'd hit like four fifty. Yeah, I mean hit them where they ain't. And right? then they'd ship and then they'd start moving back on him and he'd hit the ball where they weren't somewhere else. Like great hitters like Tony Gwynn, they don't make those kind of hitters anymore, but if they did, those hitters would be great despite the shift. Like, I'll just say that. Well, I think we're going to see the offense is going to be, there's a lot more hits. There's probably going to be a lot more runs now without the shift. Yeah. But did you see how in one of the preseason games, um, the Red Sox moved their left fielder into shallow right? It was on Gallo, I'm pretty sure, funny enough, I mentioned him. Yeah, so, I mean, what do you, do you think we're going to see the Padres do that? I don't, and I think that baseball is going to, after this season, going to be like, okay, teams found the loophole. We're going to close that loophole. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned the rule changes. I want to talk about the whole limiting disengagements and pickoffs. This is interesting to me. And, you know, we talked about Tatis a little bit. I think, you know, now that he had the surgery on the shoulder, like, I think he's going to feel a lot more confident about running anyways. Now that you got these rules, limiting disengagements, limiting pickoffs, I think he's going to run absolutely wild when he's on base this year. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, he has three stolen bases this spring. He hasn't even been on base that much. Well, do you, how do you think the Padre batteries of the pitcher and um, Austin Nola, are they going to have a tough time? I mean, I'll say this. They they had a tough time last year anyway, so what's the difference? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, in like we're not going to be at a huge disadvantage of, like, teams. We were like, oh, well, the Padres, you, when you were on base and you have a guy with speed, you can run on him. Like, now everyone's going to be able to run on everybody with these new rules. And and the bigger bases make the distance slightly shorter. I like, so, I know you're a big Ricky Henderson guy. Could yeah. you imagine Ricky Henderson playing under those rules? Oh, my God. He would have stolen 200 <laughs> bases. Yeah, he would have. Yeah, so uh, I know. I think all – I mean, I have, uh, for the longest time was an old curmudgeon, uh, you know, traditionalist with baseball. But I really like every one of these rules. Um, I like the pitch clock. I like the banning of the shift. I like the bigger bases. I like the the, the disengagement for the you know the the uh, the pitch outs to, uh, to throw over to first, um, I think this is going to make the score yeah. better. Yeah. It's going to make it more entertaining, and it, for hardcore fans like us, we're still going to love it. Yeah, and yeah, maybe we might get a few more you know new fans to the sport, yeah. and baseball could use that. Yeah, I mean the thing about um, that to me is like you get new fans with like based off what is happening in that market in that region at that time, like. San Diego will have, you know, fewer NFL fans than they did the previous generation. This, like, in the NBA, they obviously have a lot fewer fans from Seattle this generation as opposed to previous ones. Right. So, like, it depends on, like, the market and, like, you know, like, in Cincinnati, you know, it's more of, like, the older guys who are, you know, baseball fans. Not saying that they there aren't any young people who are Reds fans in Cincinnati. I'm just saying that because of Reds' ownership, like... It's more of like the old school guys, the not so much the current generation with the fans in Cincinnati for the Reds, but like so it's always gonna depend on like ownership, how good the team is. Did you have a team leave the region? Like we talked about with here in the NFL and Seattle and the NBA. But yeah, you might draw a couple more fans out. There's more action in between. And mm-hmm. but I think again, it matters more like the Padres are making a lot more fans here than than a lot of teams will in their region just because of the commitment to winning and all that. Yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it, it's 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 interesting you talk about like the Reds in Seattle, some of their situations because the Padres were so awful for so long. Oh yeah, and the, and the Chargers were good, and I think that's why for the longest time San Diego was more of a football town. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, when you have 
when you have LT, who's a top five running back of all time, Antonio Gates, one of the best receiving tight ends of all time, and, you know, I know they came out short in the playoffs, you know, San Diego Sports Curse and all that with some of those losses they had in the playoffs, but <laughs> those were still great teams that people got excited about. Whereas the Padres, you know, they won two in West Tiles that year, but those were kind of dull teams, like, mm-hmm. that would try to win games two to one, three to two. And then, you know, the Morat era came in. And so, yeah, it really does depend on what's going on in the region at that time. Yeah. I mean, so this is going to be just a great year for the Padres. Is this the year they get the monkey off the back? I think it's this is the year that not only do the Padres go deep, maybe get to the World Series again. This is also the year the Aztecs get to at least the Sweet 16. This is going to be the magic year in San Diego. I mean, I don't want to... I'm always afraid that if I say it's going to happen, I'm going to jinx it. I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to go too far and say, I don't want to jinx it. But I feel really good about that. Both those things that you said. And I'll say this, too, is that, you know, we talk about the San Diego sports curse, all the things that haven't gone our way. I think in the last, you know, starting with the Padre playoff run, some of the things, some of the breaks and some of the things that didn't go our way the year before, it's. Hasn't fully shifted, but it's starting to shift. And I'll give you a couple plays for example. Let's go to Game Three of the Division Series against the Dodgers. Remember, we were up two one sixth inning. Tyne Run was at second with Martinez pitching. Chris Taylor hits that little nubber to the side of the mound. What is every San Diego sports fan thinking when Martinez picks that ball up and throws it? Yeah, it's going to go into right field. I was thinking, <laughs> like, he's going to throw this ball down the right field line. The game's going to be tied. The Dodgers are going to go on to win. They're going to win game four, and our season's going to be over. Like, that was just what every San Diego sports fan thinks. What happens? Nope, picks up a seed, fires it to first base. You're out. Yeah. Perfect throw. And then eighth inning of that game, you know, it's still a two-to-one game. Um we almost pick off Trey Turner. And I'll say this, because in that game, I mentioned I was at that game. I was sitting second deck in right field. I had a great view of the Padre dugout. The whole dugout jumped up and down with like their head, like they're challenging. Like they thought we got him. And they showed the replay on the scoreboard. Like a lot of people in the stadium thought we got him. They called him safe. I was thinking to myself, watch, he's going to hit a home run. Muncie, one of the most hated Dodgers here in San oh, yeah, Diego, sure. is going to hit a home run to give them the lead after we almost had him picked off and we should be out of the, arguably out of the inning. Nope. Um, Smith hits a fly out and uh, Muncie strikes out and we go on to win that game and you know win game four, obviously win the series. So, you know, and then the Aztec game, the Mount West Championship game against Utah State, you know, that scramble, they... Utah State throws up the three that goes in at the end of the shot clock. Oh, yeah. They review it, and you're thinking, oh, he might have still been his hand at zero, but you're not going to be able to tell. We probably aren't going to get the call. We got the call. They waved the basket off. So, yeah. like, I just feel like starting to shift a little bit. <laughs> well, how and about- then obviously with the team that left blew the 27-0 lead in the first round of the playoffs. Can't forget that. <laughs> right. So, so it yeah, feels but- like it's starting to shift a little, you know? Well, how about that? Remember that one play when the uh, Padres were in Houston and it was two outs bottom of the ninth. Tatis hit the foul ball on the on first baseline and they dropped it. And then the next, yeah. <laughs> and then like a couple pitches later, he hits it up to the railroad tracks. Yeah, and then we win that game next year. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels like... Especially in the last six months, with those specific plays that I mentioned, things are starting to turn a little bit, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's good. I mean, it's so, yeah, we've got so so much, we've got to regress to the mean because we've had so much negative energy in San Diego. 
we're due. We're due for Major League Baseball. We're due for NCAA basketball. Even the women's team for San Diego State's done very well. I mean, yeah, they they, they came up a little short of the Man West Tournament, but they made the women's NIT, and you're like, oh, you're thinking, okay, whatever. But they haven't been good in a while. That's a big step for our women's team. Yeah, I think that's terrific. I mean, so you look across the board. I mean, even like Point Loma has been really good in basketball. Didn't they go far in there? Division or yeah, for uh, then the playoffs, and they're going to be one of the favorites in the D two uh, brackets. And then UCSD is still working through their transition yeah. to D one. Uh, their baseball team is looking really good this nice. year. Nice, yeah. So this San Diego sports starting to improve. We've got Steve Lavin at USD. I think that's something to look forward to as well. So, so uh, David, tell me a little bit more about the podcast. How can people contact you or to tune into your podcast? Okay, so it's Davy Sports Podcast. It's on Spotify. It's on the app that was Anchor, and now it's called like Spotify for Podcasts or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's how you can find that. I, I'm starting that up. I'm probably going to do one breaking down, you know, at least the first weekend of the tournament. I'm going to, because I already fell out my bracket. So I'm thinking about either, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, either Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, early afternoon. You'll I'll probably post one talking about each game in the first, at least in the first weekend of the tournament and why I think, you know, we might see some of these upsets that you're seeing. Okay. That you, I think you'll end up seeing. So it's the Davy Sports Podcast. It's available on Spotify. Yes. And um, and how often are you producing episodes now? I try to do it twice a week. I mean, I don't always do it twice a week, but that's the goal. Yeah. So, I mean, you just got started. I mean, how many episodes do you have under the belt now? Ten. Ten. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I mean, so keep going, Um, you know, keep going. Again, I think you're going to be terrific at this because you've got a lot of insight. You know, the data, you know, the analytics, Um, you've got really good opinions on this and you're passionate. Yeah. This is what you live for. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so who knows where it goes, right? You build a podcast and, you know, there's a career here for sports journalism. There's a lot of possibilities for you. Yeah. Awesome, man. So thanks for coming, yeah. right? Um, and uh, looking forward to you know the Aztecs on Thursday at what, at 12 noon? Yeah, 12.10. 12.10, and uh, hopefully they're going to beat Charleston and move on, and we have a good weekend. Yeah, I'll be at spring training this weekend. I'm looking forward to that. I'm hoping that um, if we win Thursday and we play Saturday, you'll see me at spring training wearing this hat and a Padre jersey on top of this Aztec jersey. So are you going to be maybe catching a ball in the right field like you did that one time? Yeah, and if I do, maybe, who knows, depending on if we win Thursday and we play Saturday in the afternoon, maybe I'll be watching the acid game on my phone while I'm catching the ball. Yeah, that would be good. Let's, let's hope that's the case. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? All right, well, David, thanks a lot for coming. No, thanks for having me. I had a great time. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.